Hello and welcome to the 39th episode of Damage Control Podcasting, a professionally unprofessional look at the conventions, ideas, and genres of filmmaking. I'm here with... Daniel Newkirk. Alright, so, uh, it's Steampunk Weekend, 5th Annual, Big River Steampunk. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, me and Daniel are heading down... This is, this is pretend, Daniel, that we haven't already... <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain, we've already been down there. All the interviews are done. Uh, we we did a video package, but we're gonna pretend, Daniel's. We're, so we're getting ready to head down there. Oh, I'm so excited! I, Me too. Uh, I will totally not leave the equipment in Quincy. Yeah, this and, time when I come down to Hannibal. Yes. Uh, what are you What are you looking forward to? <laughs> um, I'm really looking forward to both of the uh, burlesque shows that I have tickets for. Right. Um, as well as um, really looking forward to seeing the Metamorphosis uh, transformation by Judas and Magnolia. Um, it's and the mind reading and the uh um both of those are on my list of things to do as well as the uh um the steampunk film festival yes yeah uh spoiler alert i missed two of those three because we were working yes so we've got <laughs> we've got video of videos well we did do a video or we are going to do a video oh uh, we haven't done it yet or maybe we have this is like a time traveler episode. Yeah. Perfect for steampunk. Yes, and I'm already confusing myself. <laughs> uh, so we so check out our YouTube channel for the videos or, or that we, that we will put up. Uh, we did some interviews. We did. We're, we're going to do interviews with the uh, Scal- Little Beard and Scallywags. Yep, absolutely. They're a uh, pirate themed comedy troupe, or as they say in the interview, a comedy themed pirate troupe. Just uh, Judas Magnolia. Uh, yes, uh, 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 fantastic magicians and escape artists. Um, we talk about their uh, three brand new shows they crafted We're this year. We're going to talk about it. We are going to talk about the three new shows they crafted this and year. And then, uh, as a spoiler warning, we will we will be trolled by a child, so there'll be a weird edit point. Because <laughs> I think... Okay, okay, the your, veil's your, over. Your, your clairvoyance is really rocking hard on this one. The, the, veil, the veil's <laughs> over. Uh, so the steampunk weekend's over. Uh, we got the interviews. Uh, so uh, we apologize every time we hit record for an interview. The gentleman who was very good at playing piano, very, very good at playing piano, but he decided to play piano every time we recorded. And we wanted to get the performers out of the really hot sun, so our choices were very limited. And Java Jive was very nice to let us record. Oh, absolutely. They were fantastic hosts um, with their air conditioning and the fine drinks. Um, if you're in downtown Hannibal, check out the Java Jive. They are a fantastic place to be. Yes. So uh, so just hang in there on the interviews. I've already listened to them. They're not bad, but the piano... Uh, you will hear the piano in the background. We have a couple children who wanted to troll us in our interviews. Uh, can't help that. So, uh, so uh, first up, the first interview up will be. Uh, I, the first interview we had was uh, Eva Lafiva um, with uh, special guest Co Bass. Yes. Um, two uh, beautiful uh, women who uh, tar- take place. Uh, during or they, um, mm, boy, words. It's it's been a long weekend, guys. Yes. Um, the two lovely women who uh, take part in the burlesque shows on Saturday and Sunday. Um, I got to see both of them perform on both days, and they did such a magnificent job. 
Then our, uh, followed by an interview with uh, Amy Wilder. Yes, the the gorgeous Amy Wilder, uh, who uh, uh, also performed at both burlesque shows and uh, a professional nude model. So we get to talk to her about uh, uh, kind of her modeling career and her um, position on nudity in movies. And she was very nice. We grabbed her right after uh, a class or uh, not a, a class. A panel. A panel mm-hmm. she was doing, so we gave her no time to catch her breath. So no time. So, it was pick her up and run her to the jive. Yeah, so we appreciate her doing that. And then the scallywags after that. Yeah, uh, absolutely hilarious. Um, uh, we could sit back and talk to them for hours without saying a word, and uh, uh, they were fantastic. We also caught them just they were finishing the show. Um, funny, they actually thought I was the guy locking up the theater at first. And I'm like, uh, no, we've got plans. He's like, oh, right, the podcast. And they immediately canceled what they were doing to come do the podcast, which was so amazing of them. Um, and they were fantastic guests. Absolutely hilarious. Make sure you listen to that one. And then finally, the last uh, interview of the night was Judas and Magnolia. Yes, uh, Judas and Magnolia. Um, we got the chance to talk to them about uh, the history of magic uh, as well as a little bit of who they are um, and their three new amazing tricks they get to do. I felt bad because I just wanted to keep asking Judas about uh, history of magic. Uh, we... And it, it was like getting really late. Yeah, we we were really pushing the time restraints, and you could tell that the um, they were they were um, pretty exhausted after the weekend, and but they were so great to talk yeah, to. Yeah, very nice. They didn't. But so in the Judas and Magnolia interview, you'll hear an odd edit because we had a, a kid, a child that was trolling us. Oh yeah, he was trolling us pretty hard. We 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 powered through the other one, but that one we actually had to stop and. So, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, I, I'm being forced to edit, so uh, I will. We will jump to the first interview. Yeah. All right, and welcome back from Adam's Skippy Jump Cut Edit. Uh, we are here with uh, Evil Ofiva and Celo Bass at the Big River Steampunk Festival. Theo Bass. Theo Bass. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. So not like CeeLo Green. There we go. CeeLo Bass. All right, I apologize. Oh, it's fine. Uh, We're starting off that professionally professional just right. (laughs) All right, so... (laughs) You better. (laughs) All right, um, so Evil Fever and CeeLo Bass, um, you girls, uh, we saw you at the show last night, which was the, the burlesque show. Um, which was is it was always a masterpiece. Um, I was there last year, loved it. Uh, I was loved it this year. I can't say enough good things about both of your girls' performances. Um, how did you guys get started with uh, the burlesque dance, and, and how did you guys kind of get into that? Um, well, I came from a belly dance background, so I started off when I've been belly dancing for over a decade, and then a lot of. Um, a lot of times in a lot of cities it's difficult to work as a belly dancer unless you're working in like an Arabic nightclub or something and, and make decent money. Um, a lot of belly dancers have kind of gone into performing in variety shows, so I started performing in St. Louis um, with Lola Vanilla, and um, that's where I met Sammy Tramp as well. Um, they were producing a show at the time called The Beggar's Carnival. Um, I started doing belly dance-inspired burlesque acts that kind of fused, and then slowly over time it just kind of morphed into more burlesque. Um, just because I think in burlesque you can you get a lot more creative freedom, and you can, you know, there's not a lot of rules. Like, you know, belly dance, you're reflecting a culture, so obviously you want to be mindful about how you present yourself and your and your stories and your acts and things of that nature. So um, I think burlesque is really free because you can do a lot with it. You know, you can 
really, you can be like, I'm going to be a sexy fox, and if you do it well, <laughs> it's fine, you know, I mean, if you do it well, you can get away with it, you know. Right on. Um, I come from a Latin dance background, uh-huh. focusing mainly in, on salsa, and um, I did that for about seven years, and I had a pretty amazing partner at the time, but we sort of had creative differences, and I'm, I am great, it's amazing starting off amazing. <laughs> you guys don't know what happened, but we know. Anyway, um, it just started to get to the point where I, I had these ideas and he wouldn't, I felt like I didn't have freedom, like Eva mentioned, to do things I wanted to do. So I wanted to find something where it was more like a solo situation. I could make my music, I could make my costuming. Oh my God! <laughs> Sorry, for those of you listening at home, we're being attacked by a fly who just loves these two ladies. She's flying around us like crazy. I'm scared I'm going to swallow it. Anyway, um, I just wanted to have a little more control over what I did in my acts and choreography. And a friend of mine invited me to a show, and it was a burlesque show. And I thought, whoa, I could totally get into this. This is so cool. Um, and then the rest is history. <laughs> that show. And Sue brings up such a great point that burlesque dancers, you know, we're on promoters, we're on music editors, we're on customers, we're on hair and yeah. makeup, you know. So, it, you know, when you're when you're in like a play or something, you know, you're interpreting someone else's character and someone else's part, but burlesque, you're calling all the shots and you can create it's your brand. from start to finish. Yeah, exactly the energy and the look that you want to bring to the table, which is really cool and powerful and free. Like yeah. Same words over and over. Yeah, I can definitely with see that. With the, since you guys build your own costume stuff, are you guys kind of like a close knit community where you guys help each other out? Because you may go into the, the world of yeah, I think a lot of people bring things from their past that they know, like, you know, so I used to sew as a kid, so I do a lot of sewing in my costumes. I used to belly dance, so I end up using a lot of those similar movements in the Like, I think you tend to kind of carry stuff from your past and your training. Yeah. And because you don't, you don't have to be a customer. Um, you don't have to be a dancer even to be a brass performer. Again, you just have to execute an idea well, you know, so, and there's a lot of crossover and a lot of people that do have expertise offer their skills um, to the community, which I think is really wonderful, it's very inclusive. Yeah, like if somebody's particularly good at sewing, then sometimes they have like a little side business helping other people sew that maybe can't make, like for instance, I can sew by hand, but I don't know how to use a machine. So a lot of my costumes are what I like to call like a Frankenstein effect. <laughs> I will go to a store, whether it's a vintage shop or a dress that really caught my eye, or something that's on sale that I'm like, oh, I could rip this apart and make something completely new. But I don't have to start from scratch. But if you do want to do that, then there, you have so many other people that like, oh, that, yeah, I'm a seamstress, like, that's what I've been doing my whole life, and I also happen to do burlesque. And so it can't cross over like that, sort of like, um, you know, um, trading, trading services and stuff like that. So yes, in some aspects, I suppose it can't be like that. Great. Uh, so, um, I feel like the, the people at home may not quite understand the difference between uh, burlesque and exotic dance. Um, I feel like when so they, they kind of synonymize the two together, and, and I know there's a difference. Adam, I think, knows there's a difference. Um, but I remember uh, when I went to my first show, asking my girlfriend if I could go, and she's like, oh, well, I don't know. It's, you're just going to go see strippers. I'm like, no, it's completely different. 
Um, as professional burlesque dancers, what's the main difference that you would tell the people at home between you know your your exotic dancers at a club and what you guys do as our Honestly, um, I think that a lot of it is just the economic structure of how the art forms are put together. So in burlesque, you know, we're hired to do an event. We're, we're our pay is set. We know that we're going to walk out the door with a certain amount. I mean, all shows are kind of structured differently in terms of pay, but like. Essentially, like, if I get on stage and I don't want to do my perform, I don't want to do my act, you know, I can leave and still get back. Whereas strip clubs, you know, it's customer service, so essentially, you know, they're trying to... And people don't realize, I think, how hard strippers work, and I think that it's, like, culturally something where people want to be like, oh, yes, yeah, strippers, like, and make, make them the butt of a joke, but honestly, I feel like the strippers that I know are incredibly hardworking because they have to work much longer hours than burlesque dancers, you know, they have to rent their space on stage to do like their pole dances and then they have to make that money back throughout the night so you know it's like a lot of people don't realize that you know strippers like they're they're hustling to get money because that's how they earn their income and it's the economic structure of burlesque is traditionally much different and I think um, when you're approaching it from a customer service mindset your physicality changes where you know a lot of burlesque is like you go into it wanting to with your set act that you choreograph that like it doesn't matter who's in the audience the act is probably going to be what it pretty, is pretty similar regardless of, of, of the environment in the, in the particular venue I mean you tweak things here and there but yeah yes. there's a set idea and yeah Sorry, go ahead, I didn't mean to. No, 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 no. Oh, uh, just in strip clubs, you know, it's just something I think it's a little more, what's the right word I'm looking for? Um, I guess not as strict, you know, you can, you can, and not that burlesque is strict, it's just that they have a little more, like Eva said, it's customer service, so it just, it comes from a different perspective, you know, it's not necessarily good or bad it's just different is all it is and not to okay. mention that it takes real talent yes. to be a stripper and I don't mean talent like pretty or dancy or anything like that I mean like you have to be strong I'm like you guys are like gymnasts like <laughs> I tried to do a pole dance once and I was like Jesus Christ this is like I felt like my arms were going to rip off so yeah that's a big difference between <laughs> yeah. and people sure. strippers that I know that, that I've talked to have told me that so much of the Not job the is yeah like uh, a lot of strippers that I've, I've met have told me how difficult the job is from just a, uh, interacting with people like a lot of times they're like yeah when I get into the back room with a client all they want to talk about is how they're having problems processing the death of their father or something you know, like, it's, it's so, such a large part of it is just essentially being like providing companionship in a most basic sense emotional to yeah, yeah and I think that, again the like, performers were just like and yeah with girls performers it's much less again like I, the only word I can think to describe it is really like customer service you know like okay so um, yeah. so, so kind of like the difference between like a scripted performance and an improvisational performance oh my god I just thought of one because it's like more theatrics right it would be like maybe comparing going to a place where it's like um you go to a restaurant and you have a server, right? Versus, what's the word I'm looking for? What Jeff and I do with the cat? Um, coordinated service. Okay. Do you know, they both sort of stem from the same branch, but one is more coordinated and there's a lot more things going on while the other one is more individual, kind of case by case. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. That would be like, yeah. I don't know. 
So, so going back to the um, uh, to, to what you guys do, um, can you walk us through when you're ready to make a new um, routine? What's kind of your creative process uh, to creating the story behind what you're what you're doing? Um, I think everyone's creative process is different. But um, so I think some people start with the costume and build their act around that. Some people do. I tend to find music that moves me first, and then create the actor on that. Um, or sometimes I have a larger conceptual idea, like my my hula doll act, like I have, which I performed here two years ago. It's a dashboard hula doll that keeps dancing with the radio station, changing chairs. And that act came about because I had hurt my foot and I couldn't really dance around, and so I was like, I'm gonna do an act where I'm standing in place on a podium and. At the same time, an old boss of mine giving me an old bullet costume and was like, I know you dance, maybe you can do something with this. So it's like, <laughs> sometimes things just come together weirdly, organically, where you kind of are given pieces and you're like, well, I guess this is happening. Um, and then other times, you know, you set up with an idea, like, I want to create an act that has this focus. Um, but a lot of my inspiration starts with music and it kind of works from there. That's me personally. Oh, that no, I, I agree 100% with everything you said, and it is different, and you just never know when the muses are going to strike, you know, like, sometimes it's a color, sometimes it's a show, or a hairstyle, like, I made a whole act, the feather fan dance I did, I did that entire act based on this flapper headpiece that I got at a gig I did with um, Angela Eve. And it was the colors. I loved it. And funny enough, I don't even use the piece anymore. <laughs> the <act laughs> went off on its own thing. And I'm like, you know what? I don't like this headpiece anymore. The thing that like brought the whole thing together. So, yeah. I agree with you know, 100%. Really, really you, guys, you guys talked about using music. Is there, <coughs> as far as using music, are you, are you guys allowed to use whatever music you want? Or is there like legal restrictions? From a strictly legal perspective, technically we should probably have a BMI license to, to dance to music that's owned by... I think you can also buy it too, like if you buy it there's a few yeah, yeah, I think things that, that come with that. And a lot of the venues that we perform in have music licenses to play music, so like uh, the BMI license is basically a license that you can play like music on a jukebox in your bar. So. But a lot of it, honestly, for us, is like a lot of times there are roles in place. Like there are roles about nudity and how much nudity you can show in a place that's certain liquor. And like, no. And some of the rules are actually kind of, if you look at the nudity laws, are pretty like antiquated. It's like in, in, in Nashville, for instance, you can't show the bottom half of your breast below the areola, and you can't show your, um, your for lack of a more delicate phrase, butt crack. Uh, and two inches of either side of your butt crack. And you're just like, who, who went and set this rule? Like, who made this and was like, butt crack is really weird. The butt cheeks are fine. I want to be the guy who has to enforce that law. Just hold on, here's my measuring tape. You're fine. Really, I think that that's what it is. It's like all these laws, and it's really some areas they, there's somebody there that is enforcing that, or they get public pressure, and so then all of a sudden things like music licensing or like nudity it becomes a much bigger deal. But for the most part, honestly, and as so much as I hate to say this, we're not really making enough money for anybody to come after us. You know what I mean? If we were like multi million dollar, I think that it might be a different story, but since it's kind of underground, and I think it's less of an issue. But, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, that makes sense. Going back, oh, sorry, going back to your creative process, we talked about how you start when you're creating uh, as far as, I, I'm, I write a lot. Do you have, when you work on your dance, do you have a 
React structure do you go into? Is it just, or do you not think of it in terms of beginning, middle, and type? Oh, no, I think, I think the best burlesque acts have this feeling of everything kind of being, like, wrapped up perfectly with the bow, like, all of your X's and T's crossed and your I's dotted and everything. Like, I think people really respond to, like, patterns and keep revisiting things throughout the act or, like, coming up to certain, like, you know, there's principles like the rule of threes, which is something in comedy where, you know, you do something three times and it's funny. Like, a lot of, like, those sort of elements you um, definitely need to go into burlesque and, um... Especially the physical theater acts, I think, tend to be um, very structured. And when I choreograph, honestly, um, a lot of times I kind of start from a global perspective. I listen to my music a lot. I get really familiarized. I learn every beat, every tick, and then I kind of go and make an overall. Okay, this verse, I'm going to take up this piece of clothing. This verse, and kind of approach it from like a bird's eye view, coming down onto the act, as opposed to. From beginning to end, I can't do if I if I the times I've tried to start from beginning to end, I drive myself crazy, and I and I feel blocked. I all of a sudden I can't. But if I just like let it go, and I'm like, no, I think in this part I know I want to take the bra off, and in this part I'm going to do the glove, and then just sort of let the middle fill itself out as you go, and you're feeling things I'm out. So jealous that when I'm writing, I'll have the middle in, but if I don't have the next dialogue written, I can't just go, I'll work on that later. I, I, like, I would stick on that dialogue for like two months until I figured it out. I'm very jealous of that you guys really <laughs> did. It drives me nuts. I mean, it, it took a lot of trial and error for me to finally get to that point. I think it was just like, why am I not growing? Why why am I so stuck? Why do I feel part? And I'm like, well, I'm not even allowing myself to be creative. I'm just like, it has to be this way. And I'm like, why? Why does it have to be that? Like, this is crazy. And within, well, like you said, you don't use that headpiece anymore. Do you find, like, musicians, they'll play the same song 50 times, and then they'll decide to play a solo? Or do you guys kind of, like, start falling asleep after a while because you're doing the same dance? It's like everything, it gets old after a minute. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of my acts, like, the 100th time I've done it all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I can do this this way. Like, that's the cool thing I think about what we do is, like, don't, there's never, I feel like there's very few things that are ever, like, completely done. It's not changing a beat. Right, there's always room to grow, yeah. You can always modify it slightly, make those little tweaks and kind of, like, you know, figure out. So is that one thing that, like, I'm very jealous, very jealous of people like you guys, stand-up comics, uh, anyone who goes up on stage and like basically, for you guys literally, but basically exposing, it's, to me, I would I would be in a corner being on myself. <laughs> so I'm very jealous of the way you guys do that. So is that, is that something that draws you back to be able to, to show your art and then be like, ah, I want to do this tonight. Is that, that's something that keeps you coming back, or is it just what, what keeps bringing you back to, to the stage? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I work full time as a gross performer and a teacher and um, a producer, so I produce events, and it, gets, it can get really repetitive and, and and it doesn't always feel like fun. So a lot of times it feels like going to work because it is. Like well, that, it is you know, work, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I think, you know, like. Changing it up can be fun when it works. You know, sometimes you try something and you're like, well, that sucks. But you're still learning something. <laughs> yeah. you know? So I think it's all productive and it's all like working towards a bigger thing. For me, what keeps me coming back is like that that connection with the audience. Like, really, especially a place like Cannibal, people are so incredibly thoughtful here and are so invested in what we're doing. It's really wonderful that they'll come up and they'll remember our acts from previous. 
previous years. And I know. That I'm like, oh, you remember me? That's so cool. Thank you. Like, I appreciate that so much. Yeah, and you would think that, like, being a burlesque dance that you just are going to get skeevy guys coming up to you being like, nice tits, honey, but it's not. Oh, no. That is not welcome <laughs> for me. It's people coming up and being like, wow, I really connected with this thing that you did, or, like, I really find this powerful and inspired. And, like, that's the thing. It's really humbling and really fulfilling, I think, to know that, like, it's not just screaming into the void like people are actually like oh I got that I liked it you're like yay another thing for me I think also that brings me back is that there's a bit of excitement and there's like I get exhilarated in a bit of a rush especially just before a show because I always get so nervous like if you ever go backstage I'm like sweating I'm always trying to act cool because I learned a while ago that you know if you're very nervous and whatever energy you bring backstage, it affects others. So I'm always trying to act like I'm cool, but I'm losing my mind on the inside. I mean, it's just complete chaos. And I get on stage, and whatever happens, happens because it's live entertainment. And when you have a, something that you feel happy with or you connect with the audience in a certain situation, like last night actually was one of those nights for me. I walked off stage, and I was like, I just want to feel that a million times over. Like, I just... That feeling of, like, people being just so engaged and, and cheering and hooing and I'm just like yeah we're all here enjoying this together that always brings me back I remind myself that every time I'm like I'm gonna quit and I'm like no I'm not <laughs> I love that attention I want it it's really an exercise about really inhabiting the present moment because when you're on stage you, like you can overthink it but it's gonna lead to a really over thought out performance yeah. <laughs> sometimes I can see it when someone's on stage and like one and two and three and four oh and yes I was and then you see people that are just really losing themselves in the music and really like you know channeling something greater than themselves not to overstate it but I mean I've seen but performances reads, where yeah. you're like I don't think that person's human like I think they just did something that was that's why I felt about your doll act last night. I was like, oh my god, get the hell out of here. Fuck out of here, because I can say it. Woo! <laughs> yeah, I, I 100% agree. The, the, the act that you did last night was incredibly powerful. Uh, um, last year, um, I, I looked for, for both of you and a couple of the other dancers on social media, and I found you on YouTube. And every time you bring up something new, I always make sure to watch it. Um, all of your videos, every time... And this is going to sound funny, but every time that I see you, I need to find a picture of you to make sure it's you. Because you are so different every single time I see you. Either be like now, from yesterday when you are in the steampunk garb, and then the doll costume, and then last year you did this mid uh, this uh, like 1950s wife costume. The whipped cream one. The whipped cream one, and then like you did another zombie performance. And the transformations that you can make when you're transitioning from character to character are absolutely incredible. How do you do that? Um, well, I think, um, I've, I think generally as a human being, I tend to be a little, maybe too much. <laughs> I, like, I'm a very expressive person by nature, so I think that, like, you know, people are always like, how do you make those faces? And I'm like, I don't even realize I'm making faces. Oh my god, your facial expression! I also have larger features, so I think sometimes they just read. Like, you know, I think some people make big faces, but I don't know. I think there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot there. But um, I think, you know, I, I, I did theater as a kid, and like, I really like that idea. And like, the, the ones that I was really attracted to, the things that really brought me into burlesque were like the acts where I felt like there were stories and there were people that you could like identify with because. Um, you know, being a 
professional dance in Chicago, like a lot of the venues want you to just be sparkly, fancy lady time, strutting around yeah. and like, look at me sparkle, which is fine, and a lot of people do that really well, and I yeah. enjoy doing that too. But to me, there's so many images and there's so many representations of like perfection and beauty and flawlessness and stuff that it gets a little boring for me, honestly. Like the even the the classic Celeste dances that I find myself really attracted to, like the people are really infusing it with character, even if it's still that stereotypical Celeste feel. So you know they're very like, oh hey, you know they're playing with their audience, and you feel like you know them at the end of the show. You've shared that moment together, yeah, like there's a connection. Yeah, you're like, I bet if I talked to that person, I would know what they were like. You know what I mean? Like that. I absolutely can understand that um, because one of the reasons why we reached out to you is I did have that really strong connection to your performances in the last year and then like all the connection like through internet there was connection through the YouTube videos and I'm like she's a person I want to talk to oh thank you very much I appreciate that um so you said that once one of the the, the main things that you do is you teach classes Mm -hmm. um if there are people looking to get into this style of dance what's some of the biggest advice you can give them well, um, you know, we actually, see and I worked really hard to try to bring some workshops this year to Hannibal, actually, because we thought that, that the educational component, and especially the energy here, we thought it would be a really good fit, because I think it's always important to keep learning and to keep growing and to keep, even if you're a professional, like, you can, you, you're never not a student, you know what I mean? You're right. like, you're a lifetime student, I think. And I think, um... I think, you know, definitely it's always great if you can find someone that's teaching classes in your area and attend and have somebody watch your form and give notes and give, um, teach. you know, not everyone has that luxury, like, I don't, I don't believe I know of any instructors in Hannibal, particularly, um, but, you know, I think But it doesn't necessarily just have to be, like, there's, like, burlesque isn't one, pardon, like, one specific dance, you know what I mean? So, like, I guess one of the things would be... You could learn any type of dance and then incorporate burlesque into that, or any theater, comedy. You can, I mean, that's very true. Eva's a very great representation of that. Like, you can take anything and incorporate burlesque into it, and if you do it right, you're gonna nail it, you know? Like, yeah, but sorry, I didn't No, I think that's a great note that just any sort of, you know, it doesn't have to be burlesque, it can be theater, it can be dance, it can be partner dancing because all of that is going to give you that idea of like what it is to put things on a, a like just exercise that performance muscle I think um there's also a lot of events like you know this like this is like a steampunk convention like there's a lot of burlesque events so there's a great event in Seattle called Burlicon that's all instructions all instructional classes and you know, things of that nature um and I think too just like really studying like anything that you love you know like if you're a writer you know you read a lot of books by a lot of different authors and you know you look online and you watch I mean I guess you can't really watch videos for writing but like in burlesque you know like watching a lot of videos and like really asking yourself what am I connecting to in this performance what do I like what don't I like you know because I think the one thing about burlesque that I will say is like doesn't serve anybody to try to pretend to be anybody else or try to be a character that you're not or like I like granted I'm not a broken doll but like for me that act was a lot like the original information of that act was about kind of like trying to come to terms with aging and getting older and feeling like you're falling apart a little bit and stuff and so you know that was something that I could I could relate to and I tried to bring that into that performance even though I wasn't I've never spent time as a broken doll but um (laughs) But it makes sense though, because it's to like making um, amends with the, the broken parts of who you are inside. At least knowing you personally, I'm like, 
I mean, we're I'm not. We don't have to be literal about it, but I just mean like, no, like the parts of you and accepting that it reads in your act. You know, like when you put your eye back in and that makes you happy and it falls back out and you're like, whatever, then I'm just going to dance around with my eye out. <laughs> like, it's still okay. <laughs> it's very telling of your personality. Thank you. I, um, I heard a great, there's a Ben Folds or Ben Folds song, and it's called I Do the Best Imitation of Myself, and I always think with art, like, don't try to be somebody else, like, be you, because, like, you're never going to be a better version, like, I'm never going to be a better CO Bass than CO Bass, like, CO Bass and is the best cat being her, you know, like, and, and her style, like, if I went out and tried to do some, like, Latin number, like, if people would, I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't read as something that was genuine to me. I think people really connect with people being honest in any art form. Yeah. Honesty is really, that's when people come up to you and they're like, I got what you mean. I, I picked up what you were throwing down. I was connected to this and I was really inspired. Like, that's where that comes from. It's people yeah. recognizing truth on stage. <laughs> Soapbox? Oh, man. Okay, great. Um, so, traditionally, for those listening at home, we focus primarily on uh, cinema and both films, TV shows, as well as um, other different types of writing for different mediums. And one of the things that we've kind of gone back and forth on in the podcast in different episodes is uh, nudity in cinema. And I would like to get your ladies' opinions, because we kind of go back and forth where about, honestly, about 20% of, of us being like, yeah, there should be a nude scene in this movie is because, hey, she's hot. And, and that, you know, that room goes up a little bit more when Cody's on the podcast. Um, but about 80% of the time, we're, we're looking at the artistic vision of the director and how that kind of looks at what he wants to put forward. And I, I would love to know what your ladies' opinions are on that kind of thing. Um, because there seems to be two camps. That one's the artistic vision of the director, and two, where maybe they can rewrite the script where that's not necessary to the art. Yeah, I think, well, and, and cinema is interesting because I know that there was a lot of, and I'm not sure particularly about legislation, but I know that like, there was laws about like how you could depict certain things in movies back in the day. Like, you know, a uh, criminal could never get away with a crime. Like, they always had to be convicted and stuff. And so Where sure. couple had to be in separate Yeah, exactly. Like, there was just uh, unconscious things. And um, my, my partner is a really big movie buff, and he's got a Filmstruck um, subscription. I don't know if you guys have Filmstruck, but it's an, if you don't have it, you should check it out. It's like an old movie online. Stream, like, streaming okay. service. Filmstruck? Filmstruck, yeah. Um, and it's interesting, I recently produced a show that was based off of kind of um, 19, like, film noir style movies. So um, we have a live band, and we did kind of like all of the dialogue was very, like, it was hotter than I, or oh, yeah. outside. And, and so we watched a ton of movies, and what I found was interesting is sometimes I think when you are limited where you can't show nudity, and I'm not sure what movies that might have been a factor, but like people almost get creative and sometimes not seeing things can be more sensual or sexy or titillating than I think seeing stuff. And I mean, that it really ties back into burlesque is sometimes, you know, you can like take 15 minutes to pull off a glove and by the time that last finger is coming off, you are like, take off the glove, I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> It's like when you're so like invested, and I've seen depictions in film where sometimes the illusion or the, or the you know, and there were so many veiled references in the movies about how they would refer to things. So. Uh, there was a great line we were just watching a movie the other day, and she was like, "I'm sorry, I keep throwing you all these curves," and he's like, "Yes, in all the right places." And it was just one of those things where it's like one of those lines, like, and I'm, I'm butchering the line, but I think sometimes people actually. 
are more creative when they're asked to not show you. Or like, you know, you have, to, you have to figure out a way to like get that same response in different ways. So I think if it's done well, sometimes those can be more exciting and more like, and in my mind, better than a nude scene. I feel like, I honestly, like, can only think of a few nude scenes that I feel like would really like a strong enhancement to a film. That's just me, I don't know. I, it's for someone who's naked all the time, you think that I'd love naked. And I, love, I, think, I think seeing people naked is lovely. Like, I love bodies. And I There's beauty cool. in it as well, yeah. But to me, I kind of want, if I wanted to see nudity, I wanted to, like, advance the plot. I wanted to, like, they're getting into bed, and then she notices he has a scar on his back and realizes he's the villain or whatever, you know? I mean, like, I, I think that makes, I don't know. Like, I, that's what they were talking about. I grew up watching this. So when I'm free from best in cave growing up, I wouldn't see the girl naked, but as we watch him as a 35-year-old man, well, why are you taking a shower and just watch your friend get murdered? Why are you hopping out of the shower? That was going like, to That was going to be my point, actually. Like, I think that... If it's something, like, let's say it's a love story, I guess it would make sense if, like, the first time, you know, they made love, you get a sneak peek, a sneak peek into that. But there's a difference between that and just crowbarring nicotine. Like, you know, it's like, I get it. I mean, it can be beautiful, and, it, and it's sometimes, I don't think it's ever necessary, but it can, like, bring something, you know, that makes sense. But if you're just like pushing it, it's like, oh well. Now that's taking, yeah. You, that, now it's taken away from everything else, and I'm not even into it. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's cool, I guess. Another naked nudie scene. It's just like burlesque. If it's done well, then you can be like, that was stunning and that was beautiful, and like, you feel like I'm really affected. Or you can be like, okay, and now they're doing it. I guess. Like, why is that bra even coming up? I don't get. It. <laughs> I feel burlesque and belly dancing.
culture, yeah. So, um, I think burlesque is interesting. I've been watching old movies, and sometimes there's depictions of burlesque houses in um, movies, and, oh. and you kind of assume, the movie kind of assumes that you would be familiar with what a burlesque house was, you know. We, we did a festival in Chicago called um, the Burning City Girls Festival. We had a, a speaker come in that used to live in Chicago around the time when they had these burlesque theaters and these burlesque clubs, and was telling us a little bit about, like, you know, there was these clubs where you would go in and you would um, sit down and, and women would essentially be paid to not, like, to just sit with you and be, like, arm candy and I can. And they were telling us all of these stories about, like, they would have champagne girls where they would come over and be like, do you want me to sit with you and drink this bottle of champagne? And then, you know, some rich guy would be like, yeah, sure. And then they would, they would, of course, shake the bottle and, like, half of it would come out. And they'd be like, oh, whoops, like, I accidentally... Whoopsie, gotta get cleaned up. Or this guy was telling me that they would make champagne, they would mix, like, ginger ale and, and water and put it in bottles. And then they trained the waitresses to go, like make that popping noise and when they were when they were pushing off the cork from the top it wasn't even corked again but they'd be like whoop and they would like <laughs> to trick people and, and so like I see old movies a lot of times and sometimes you see these depictions where like people walk in they sit at a table and all of a sudden there's these ladies and they come up and they're like hey what's going on like can I sit with you and there's usually like a cabaret singer or like a dancer or something in those environments and I think that's like a representation of that period of history when that check out definitely Jeezy's Juke Joint. Um, I like to promote that because it's one of my favorite freaking shows of the year. And it tours, so it's not it only tours, in true, but Oh, that's true, yeah, sorry. Okay, so boom. And that show is an all-black burlesque review, so they take, um, they take, they uh, get applications from performers of color from all over the U.S. and all over the world now it's starting to expand and they produce an all-person of color show, which is really, really powerful and it's uh, really well carried. So. And let's see, classes, I don't know. If you could ever take a class from like Lady Jack or Jeez Louise herself, do it. Among many, but those are some of my Chicago top. Eva, I would say Eva, but she's here. So you guys said besides you. So I'm like, well, there's a few. What well, you would recommend me now? There's this one book that I'm totally escaping the title of, but it talks about like again the history of like the burlesque houses in Chicago and things like that. And I'm, Oh, I can send it to you. Maybe we can post it in the comments below the podcast or something. Yeah, but, um, yeah absolutely. Check the description for the uh, the link. And uh, there's an author named Leslie Zemeckis. Zemeckis? Oh, she's written a couple of books. Of 
about like the origins of burlesque through vaudeville houses and, and things of that nature. So that's interesting. Want to learn a little bit more about the history? And my other recommendation, I guess, would be Filmstruck, which is an online streaming service that's got a lot of um, selection of old movies, including some from like the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So um, if you don't have it, it's a good resource, especially if you're a movie buffs. All right, great. Uh, so my final question before we get to the closing is, um, I noticed uh, yesterday at the uh, your, your merch booth and then you guys brought on today, uh, do you guys make hand-make jewelry? Is that what you guys have there? Yeah. yeah. So, so how do you go about hand-making something as beautiful as jewelry you guys are wearing? Well, um, well, I came last year and I did my whipped cream act and just on a, on a lark I was like, I should make little pins that kind of match because I made those pasties out of... Uh, those like the ones that look like whipped cream they're just made out of fabric and so I was like I'll make little brooches and I'll have them and see maybe maybe I'll sell like one or two and then people ended up buying them and so I was like when I go back next year like we need to like put some gears on stuff and like it makes some stuff, stuff specifically for steampunk people because I did feel like the, the ones last year I was like I don't know if people are going to want whipped cream at a steampunk festival but what I found is people just really wanted to support us as artists which is again so humbling and so wonderful and so important like here you know people have been really awesome with like you know purchasing stuff and like attending the workshops and really um, yeah the workshops were really fun yeah. I, had a, I had, a, had a really good time People were really interested, and at one point, you know, I thought maybe they don't like it just because they were like so engaged, but with like just like very intense faces. Intense faces, and I'm like, maybe they hated it or whatnot. But last night at a show, one of the one of the women that were that was at the wor- workshop, she came up and she she'd applied it, and she looked beautiful, and that just she was like, I wanted to thank you guys for the workshop, and she had the makeup and the hair, and I'm just like. That is awesome. Like, it just made my night to see her. She, and then she wanted to make it a point to come say thank you because she was so happy with it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see that people appreciate it. You know, yeah, it's very nice. And with the jewelry, you know, we, we, um, we make all of our stuff has pendants with our faces because um, we're that many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we, we bought brand new jewelry and, you know, we kind of, we just kind of zone out and we start holding stuff up in it. It's very relaxing you know, just to kind of craft and watch film struck and put together some brushes. Absolutely. Here's some good music. Mm-hmm. Alright, well, Adam, do you have any more questions? Okay, ladies, do you have any questions for us before we... Um, no, but thank you so much for having us on the podcast. Thank you very oh, much for having me. Right. I just thrilled right. you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm thanking you. I'm thanking you. We're going to get into a thank for here. Because, <laughs> you know, we took up your afternoon. Oh, it was a pleasure. We're happy to be here. So. All right. So again, for those of you listening at home, we have the beautiful Eva Lafiva and Co. Bass. Uh, Eva, how do we find you uh, if we want to know more about you? So you can find me on um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Eva Lafiva, which is E-V-A space L-A space F-E-V-A. Um, <laughs> and my website is Eva Lafiva, again, E-V-A-L-A-F-E-V-A.com. Um, and I have information about productions and classes and things there if people have more questions about that. Okay, and CEO? Um, I'm on all three of those platforms as well as CEO Bast. I do believe my Instagram is the CEO Bast and that's um, my email as well. No, it's uh, the CEO Bast underscore Doom Kitty, but I do put it in. Yeah, tell me about my Instagram. <laughs> I don't get it. I'm so kidding. I'm like, oh, I don't know. 
<laughs> well, it was it was Doom Kitty for the longest time, but I had a, a producer say, could you just please make it CO Bass so I can find you? And I'm like, oh my god, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and um, it's also my email, actually, um, for bookings and stuff. It's thecobass at gmail.com. All right, fantastic. Well, um, uh, check them out uh, at their websites. We'll have the links in the descriptions. Uh, thank you very much, and we're going to go to the next jump cut to the next edit. Or the next interview, sorry. Okay. All right. Uh, welcome back to the Image Control Podcasting from Adam's latest jump edit. Uh, we are here with the beautiful Amy Wilder. Wilder, sorry. No, I just... That's two. And three guests. Two of them have screwed up the name now. Sorry. Amy Wilder. Uh, so, Amy, uh, welcome to the Big River Steampunk Festival. Um, how has your convention been so far? It has been wonderful so far. Other than the fact that it is sweltering hot, it has been perfect. Yeah, it, it did cool down to a cool 7.5 billion degrees today. Yes, it is. Uh, rather than being actively on fire, <laughs> I'm just singeing today. <laughs> Alright, uh, so Amy, uh, for those listening at home, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, what you do around here? So, uh, my name is Amy Wilder. I am a professional model for a living. I also work for uh, one of the bigger steampunk shops in the United States, Brute Force Studios. So, by day, I make stuff, and also by day, I pose in my underwear. <laughs> okay. And by night, I sleep a lot. <laughs> Sounds like it'd keep you pretty busy. Um, so, how did you get started into the world of uh, steampunk, um, uh, just in general? How did you get into that? So, uh, I've always been pretty nerdy since I was a kid. I, I have always loved fantasy. Uh, I was big in fantasy when I was a kid. Dragons, unicorns, other worlds, anything like that. I got really into anime when I was in middle school and high school, and I attended my first anime event when I was 16 years old. Uh, it was actually, it, was a, well, it wasn't an anime event, it was actually Dragon Con. But uh, I, I started attending a lot of anime events in my area because I wanted to, you know, discover new manga and look at other people's costumes. And I discovered steampunk through that. I, I saw people in steampunk outfits and was like, oh, this is so neat, what character are you? And they were like, oh, I'm not a character, I'm steampunk. I was like, steampunk? Wow, I can never do that. It's too expensive and detailed. That's, that's so neat. So I had like my whole folder full of steampunk pictures, and I never thought that I would do a steampunk outfit. So I, I started modeling when I was around 19 years old. I worked at Hooters, <laughs> and I, I did their bikini calendar. And so I was, I was kind of discovering modeling and discovering that I enjoyed that, but wanting to be more creative about it because... You know, like a lot of little girls, I grew up reading Vogue and thinking that those models got to keep those outfits, or that maybe actually owned those outfits, and was like, I want to play cool dress up too! I want to be a model! And so I, I forced modeling to be what I wanted it to by somehow becoming a model who plays dress up. I, I was working for Hooters, I attended an event, I, there was a designer that I'd been harassing for years who I was like, look, here's me in the Hooters calendar, can I model for you? And I, I modeled at a steampunk event, and I, I started, I attended a few panels, I learned that steampunk is a lot about making your own stuff, that there's a lot of affordable ways to do steampunk, so I started kind of building my own little steampunk outfits and costumes, 
and I started kind of asking the photographers that I was shooting bikini work with or fashion work with, hey, would you ever want to shoot something like this? And I had no idea how popular that would be. And it's it's funny to me now that I had no idea how popular that would be because like cosplay models is a whole thing where people are like, oh, you're just doing cosplay to be popular. And I'm like, much to the contrary, sir. I had no idea that this would happen. <laughs> So I, I just, I liked playing dress-up, I liked modeling, I merged the two, and it became inexplicably very successful. So now my main focus in modeling is fantasy and steampunk. And that's that's what I love. That's, no, go, go for it. You say you said you create these costumes and characters. Do you, uh... Um, so, like, you said you're big into animation. Like, what was your anime uh, like? This, this so, my first ever anime was actually a manga that I then discovered there was an anime for. Well, if you can count it as an anime, my first ever anime was Avatar The Last Airbender, okay. which, you can, I, if you can count that. It's an American anime, but it is very classic to I, I think it, I think anime. It's, yeah, it's about the animation style, the plot style. It was yeah. one of the first cartoons on Nickelodeon that had a really, really good, deep plot, more, which is more, more of an anime thing. More importantly, which things were live action. Like uh, oh, anyway, oh, oh. You can just... Next question. <laughs> you, can, you can hear it. I kind of think that's okay. Okay, I'm sorry. So, I saw somebody reading this comic book, and I was like, oh, that looks like the animation style from Avatar The Last Airbender, and they were like, duh, it's manga. And, I, and so I was like, oh, can I borrow it? And it was a friend of mine, and they were like, yeah, you can borrow it and read it. And it was Inuyasha. Oh, yeah. And I fell down the hell pit from there. <laughs> um, <laughs> But my, my first manga was Inuyasha, and then I, I got into the anime, which wasn't as good. Uh, and I, I started discovering more from then. I was uh, really into shoujo when I was younger. I had Fruits Basket, Tokyo Mew Mew, uh, Full Moon was Sagashite. I got into some, some horror anime by accident because I thought it was shoujo, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> any any No, I actually never even heard of that. I'm sorry. Oh, FLCO? Yep, FLCO. I think so. Yeah, that's one of that uh, one of Cody's favorites uh, for long-term listeners. Anyway, the, I got off on the sidetrack. Um, these costumes, characters you make when you when you make uh, costume and characters, like, do you uh, do you build like a back back lore to it in, I, in your own head? I, mean, I do. I actually, I that is my favorite part. I love any fantasy or steampunk costume. I mean, I, I consider steampunk to be part of fantasy, but I. I differentiate them because a lot of my fantasy is not steampunk, but any costume that I put together, I always have to have a backstory because that's part of what what helps me portray the character when I'm shooting, what helps me really make sure that the costume is good to have like my details, my ideas of why. Uh, it's also just fun for me. Ever since I was a kid, I liked making up my own stories. My sister and I would just full-on script things in public. <laughs> but I, I love coming up with characters for every look. So, like, it, whether it's just, like, as little as, like, oh, I'm a steampunk gunslinger who hates clothes because it's hot today. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I'll get, like, really, really into it and have a whole backstory for, like, the fairy queen or, like, I, I did this entire elf photo shoot in a tree where the backstory was that I was waiting to trap unsuspecting 
people in the forest into this tree and draw them to me. Or so, so is that like subconsciously a change of body language? Absolutely. Okay. It's it's one of the one of the things people are like, how do you show such emotion in your shoots? You're so different in each one, and I'm like, because I'm playing a character, because I got a story going on in my head. I like that's cool. Absolutely. Um, of all the characters that you created in the costumes that you've made, which character is your favorite that you wrote? My favorite costume is uh, actually, it's not a steampunk costume, I'm a bad person, but my favorite <laughs> character that I've portrayed is I have a, a dragon armor costume, and it was, it was sold as a dragon slayer costume, but I added uh, claws and horns, and although you can't see them in the photo shoot, fangs and became like a, a human dragon and my kind of backstory was it was that I was sort of uh, the kind of the idea of a selkie taken into a dragon I'm, a, I'm a, a dragon that when I take human form I wear armor that's dragon skin but then become a dragon so that's that's one of my favorite characters like it's, it's a big inside joke among my friends that I like oh you are a dragon like oh, <laughs> you're a lizard but I so that that's probably my favorite like character persona that I uh, I, I have like a lot of little like mind backstories that I play with with my, my dragon character do you have all these it's all up here. I'm a terrible writer. I know I'm a terrible writer because I've read my own writing and it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, an artist's worst critic is always themselves. I mean, there's a point, but I'm, I'm just I'm that person who will sit there for like an hour and be like, yeah, this is great. This is amazing. I'm the best creative writer. This is a great story. I can't wait to make all my friends read this. And then I'll finish writing for an hour and I'll start reading it and I'll be like, Oh my god, this is the worst fan fiction I've ever seen. <laughs> Did I write this? <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not a great writer. I am one of those bad fan fiction authors who just gets like way too into myself and my flower language, and then I read it back, and I'm like, no one can ever see this. I have to burn it. <laughs> I do enjoy other people's writing, though. I, I do like to read both the... Uh, both the uh, fan writing and professional writing, I, I really enjoy that. Okay. Um, so, of, of the things that you you do, you've taken a step that I think a lot of um, professional models are very scared to do, and that's you do um, several uh, nude shoots. Yes, um, I am actually apparently first and foremost considered a nude model at this point because once you model naked you're a nude model forever but fair, <laughs> fair enough um yeah i know i uh, i've been following you on instagram um and uh, tumblr since last steampunk festival oh wow yay <laughs> yeah i saw you at the uh the yay, last show I'm last sorry? year <laughs> no absolutely not don't be sorry uh, but there are some pictures that would make adam blush and how did you get into uh, into that, like, how did you make that jump from I'm a model to I'm someone who poses naked? Um, so, uh, I, I guess in two ways I'll answer this. I'll first I'll answer for me, and then I'll answer like in general. Sure. Um, so for me, ever since I was a child, I gave my parents heart attacks because I found a Victoria's Secret catalog when I was four, and I brought it to my mom, and I said, I need a bathing suit like this. <laughs> <laughs> And it was hopeless ever since. Right. I have always really just enjoyed the idea of looking sexy. I, I find, you know, that to be empowering for me. I, you know, I my debut as a model was doing bikini stuff for Hooters. And I 
although Hooters is a terrible place to work and I would never recommend it, uh, bikini modeling was really fun for me and I realized that that was something that made me feel really confident and really good about myself because I was kind of a, a dowdy weird kid who wore like three winter coats inside and I, I kind of dis- discovered my own sexiness and I discovered that I felt really confident and really unstoppable when I was dressed sexy um, and so that was always something I liked. I always enjoyed uh, nude photography and nude modeling. I uh, nude art, all of that. I always really liked it. I always, I don't know, something about it spoke to me. And so when I uh, when I started modeling, it was it was a long time before I posed, even in, a, in even in my underwear. I I I think I was 22 when I posed in my underwear for the first time. And I was really self-conscious, not about doing it, but about what people would say. I was really afraid of what people would say about me and to me. And I, I think I was pretty lucky. The worst I got was a lot of concerned fans going, Did you get pressured into this? We loved you before. And I'm like, okay, I know. I wanted to. It's fine. You're okay. Uh, my first publicly... Uh, my first publicly seen nude photo set was a topless photo set for a website called Steam Girl. And uh, that was an erotica site that actually focused on kind of like steampunk playboy. It was a, It's run by amazing business lady, Kato, and it's, you know, steampunk striptease type photo sets, and I really wanted to be a part of it. I, I saw it online, and I was like, I want to be a steam girl, and I found out that they modeled nude, and I was like, I'll have to model nude to be a steam girl, oh my god, and I, I did, and I loved it, and ever since then, I just, I think it's it's part of my artistic vision that I, I enjoy the idea of putting nudity into art, and not just in a sexy way, because, you know, it is... Not to sound cliche, but it's natural. It's natural. <laughs> and like, you know, being nude in nature or incorporating nudity into a character is a lot of fun for me. It gives me a chance to play with lingerie, which I also am really, lingerie is one of my, my things that I'm really interested in. I love lingerie, especially you know, historical or fantasy lingerie, kind of figuring out like, what would an elf wear under her gown? That kind of stuff. The answer is so many sparkles. <laughs> Shane Mayo and sparkles. <laughs> but uh, I, in a broader sense, there's a lot of people that ask, like, how do I know that I'm ready to model nude? And the answer to that is when you want to. And if you don't want to, then you're not ready. And if you never want to, then that's okay. You'll never be ready. And there are a lot of people who are never going to be ready to model nude. There are people who don't feel empowered by that and don't feel comfortable with that. And that is fine. For me, it was, you know, my first nude shoot wasn't published until a year after I took it. But it was it was with a, a, a friend. And we were shooting and I was just like you know what would be even cooler if I was topless in these shots uh, if, if it's okay I don't necessarily want them published but can we take some topless shots and they were like sure and it was somebody I trusted and so we took some topless shots and I saw them and I was like wow these are great I feel so good about myself looking at these like these are awesome these are so cool and it took me about a year to share them but once I shared the steam girl set and I was like well it's already done and so I, I started doing that and I enjoy it. I love it. I've, I've always liked being naked. Clothes are clothes are very stifling. But I ho- does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the exact opposite. I don't like freedom. <laughs> 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 like, uh, uh, I 
It's okay. There's lots of people with that fetish. I gotta be. That is true. He is normally a three to four shirt yeah, kind of guy. Well, don't worry. I won't tell anybody about your slutty t-shirt. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, your slutty t-shirt layered on top of another t-shirt. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not really like I'm very much in. Shameful arms. I know it. That's I'm why sorry. I, I hope I'm not making you super uncomfortable with my like suspender booty shorts no, and my no. nipple shirt. Well, that's what I wear to cut grass. <laughs> that's what I wear to cut grass too. My neighbors hate me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, I have, uh, going back to saying you, you found the, uh, you found I don't want to miss what you found your sexiness or you found that being empowering. Uh, we're, we're comic book nerds. It sounds like you're, you're more on the manga side. What do you, there's a lot of uh, controversy going on, like, because you know, like male superheroes are all armored up, and then the female superheroes they've got like a two top or something. How do you how do you feel about the way women superheroes are, are portrayed with, with the I feel that it's very unfair that I can't check out a comic book with men in bombs. Well, we'll have to let you know when we do the uh, the Men of Damage Control podcasting calendar. We'll, uh... No, I... <laughs> I... I uh, see, I have such mixed feelings about this because I am a very outspoken feminist and I do really want to see more badass women who are portrayed the way a badass woman would be in real life. I want to see more, you know, like... I say Atomic Blonde is one of my favorite movies that's come out recently because they show her fighting like a person really fights. You know, she goes down, she gets hit. It's not sexy. She, you know, she really, she has to use her size as an advantage. She gets thrown. She bleeds. She gets bruises. My God, showing a woman that got in a fight with actual bruises, that is awesome. Because so many badass women are of the Black Widow type. And I love Black Widow. She's awesome. She's a bad bitch. But... You can't really attack people with your crush. That's not a real thing. If you really, if your first attack was actually to do a full split kick, that is the worst way to get thrown. That is the worst way to get thrown. Have you ever seen uh, the the remake, Attacking People with Crotches? Have you seen the remake of Total Recall? No, I haven't. So Colin Farrell and uh, Kate Beckinsale are fighting, and he's like on a lower level, and Kate Beckinsale's on a higher level, like this, you know? And his head's just picking out. She like slides rock and roll style and like shoves her crotch into his neck. Yes, it's like the the, the, the scissor choke. And now yeah. scissor chokes are a real wrestling move, but they're not the only wrestling move, and they're not even a good wrestling move. Me and you talk about movies. I think in Atomic Blonde, isn't there a scene where after one of the fight scenes, she's got like a bath? Yes, she's in an ice bath and she looks terrible. Yeah, and I love that because that's what any woman in a fight like that would look like. Like Black Widow should be in an ice bath every night. The, The idea that Black Widow gets fully thrown against a wall and gets back up without even making a sound. That's ridiculous. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't want to put you on the spot. I do this to these guys all the time. All the time. They hate me for it. I don't want to put you on the spot. But you know how like old guys kicking ass is like like Liam Neeson and all that? Who would you cast like an old lady kicking ass? Not, or like an older lady kicking ass? Mm. I'll probably put you on the spot and I apologize. You are. I'm not great with actresses' names. Okay. <laughs> all right, fair enough. All right, anyway, moving on. I do, I do take but, one more time. No, I... I I'm sorry, I'm not great with actresses' names, but there's 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 some great ones out there that I would 
love to see, and I don't know their names because I'm not a pop culture person. But uh, Charlize Theron did an excellent job in Atomic Blonde. I, I love that they didn't cast like an 18-year-old, but they did cast someone with some maturity. And again, I just the idea that like that she makes unflattering sounds when she gets punched, that she falls, that she has to use her strength against people instead of just full on fighting like she somehow is that strong was so cool to me and I love sexy outfits I love sexy superhero outfits I will stare at them all day they make me happy in my heart but I would love to see some female superheroes that look the way a female superhero should that have outfits that make sense for what they're doing that you know they have outfits that look like they could fight in them that look like they'd be comfortable I want to see some fighting poses that are accurate I I want to see that I also I like sexy. I think it, it's based on the story. You know, back to anime. Fan service is very much a thing. But also, their anime definitely needs to dial back their fan service. You know, there is a lot of times when the fan service becomes almost as a, a detriment to the story. Like, the story would be better if it wasn't there kind of thing. So, I guess, bring on the sexy, but also let's be realistic sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can agree with that. One no. one of the things I like is that some of the more recent comics that I've seen, the illustration shows the female superheroes being kind of thicker bodied because they are buff, being really muscular like instead the, of just being like these runway models with six packs. They are they have big arms, they have thick thighs. Yeah, Ronda Rousey exactly. I, that's that's something that's made my soul really happy because that is so sexy. And there's there's women who are like, oh, I don't want to work out because I won't be sexy. Excuse me, you will be so sexy. <laughs> um, while we're on the subject, one of the things I'd like to do is get your opinion on um, uh, on things that we've discussed in the podcast. Now, uh, if you haven't listened to any of our episodes, I can't blame you. Uh, but we are usually four to five guys uh, talking about different topics and I would love to know a woman's opinion on a few of these things and one of them is uh, going back to the idea of feminism um, you are familiar with X-Men Apocalypse that movie yes vaguely oh, okay um, I admit that I haven't seen it okay um, that's yeah you're not missing much um, the, uh, there was a lot of controversy around some of the promotional material um, so the main villain is Apocalypse who's a big big mean guy <laughs> And the main hero, uh, quote-unquote, is Mystique, uh, who is a female superhero supervillain. And there was a lot of controversy over a billboard where Apocalypse was holding Mystique by the throat. And from our perspective, we were all like, well, that's kind of silly to have controversy over that because the superhero supervillain they're fighting. I I would love to know what your opinion is on that. I, again, that is a multifaceted answer. So I will say... I don't find it to be inherently offensive because oh well, male violence against women. She's a, she's fighting a villain. She's a badass. Like yeah, what 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 you want this to be like a villain who's too much of a gentleman to fight a woman? Come on, that's that's sexist. <laughs> that's sexist. Now what I will say is that the promotional material I didn't find it sexist. I did find it to be. I understood where some people were coming from saying that it was maybe unnecessarily shocking that maybe there are women or children or people that would be because of whatever life experiences would be upset by just seeing that out of nowhere that maybe a more tasteful way to do that would be to show them 
maybe clashing fists or kind of approaching each other, getting ready to fight. That the full-on choke, even for a male hero, is a little bit shocking and a little bit in your face and out there. I didn't find it to be inherently sexist, but it could have been more tasteful if that makes sense. I I understand where maybe a person with a traumatic past having been abused or having seen someone else be abused would be really upset by just seeing that billboard going about their day. But I did not find it sexist. I I really appreciate that answer because I get to sometimes hear the debates about censoring art and movies. I don't... Art should never, ever be censored, no matter what the subject is. It's about where it's displayed, which is basically what you said. Whereas someone who, a child who unfortunately sees their dad do that to their mom and vice versa, they see that, you know, 75 feet across, they not understand the concept of of uh, two movie characters, you know, they just, they see that in their daily life and they see it on the screen, then they, you know, at that point their brain's still forming opinions on social stuff. So, oh, and there's a difference between seeing that on screen in the movie and just outright seeing it on a sign, you know, exactly, yeah. and it is, you know, one of those things where yeah, that's a bad guy and only bad guys choke women or people in general, right. but at the same time, again, it was... It was very shocking, and I think that was the point that they wanted to shock people, but I think that it was uh, could have been better thought out. I think they could have showed a more family-friendly version of that clash that is less scary and less upsetting and less, honestly, less PG-13 in public. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so while we're on the topic of movies, um, one of the things, again, that we have had this discussion about several times on the podcast is about uh, the nudity in cinema. Uh, now, um, we've, we've discussed it at some length, um, and us on the podcast, again, four to five guys usually. Um, and, and I would reasonably say that about 20% of us is us being skeevy men, and about 80% is us actually appreciating what the artistic vision of the director is. Um, what is your opinion on, on nudity in cinema and um, basically how it affects the art of the director's vision? Um, basically, we fell into two camps where it was it was the director's vision, it's art, and then the other side was it should be rewritten in such a way that the nudity wasn't necessary for the art. I think I've seen a lot of nudity in cinema in my time that kind of seemed to just be there because they want to sell it with, by the way, Scarlett Johansson's titties. But, and that, you know, that's valid. Sex sells. That's, that's a true thing. I Obviously, I am a nude model. I model really incredible costumes that should be great on their own, and instead I take them off. Um, <laughs> so I get the idea that sex sells. But at the same time, there is something to be said for there's a lot of nudity in Hollywood that is not necessary. You know, Game of Thrones is a great, great show. And there is nudity in it that is totally badass and totally artistically necessary. There's also nudity in it that's like, really? Really? Did you just have to? You just had to throw some titties into this scene? You just had to? Like, I will never forget. I had heard that there was... Oh my gosh, in this season there's a full-on penis in Game of Thrones. And I was like ready for the sex scene where they finally show us both of the people naked. And then it's just some woman sitting on a throne and there's some guy's dick out. And I was like, really? That's that's your excuse to put a penis in? Just that? Like you just wanted to be shocking? That was, was just it, what you wanted to do? Wouldn't that do with like a 17-inch one? Didn't that who it was? 
I've never seen the show. Probably. It was just some guy lounging next to a throne with a dick out. Oh, that's um, right. <laughs> and yeah. like, it was, it was, it was a little like, was that necessary? Was that super necessary? Like with all the full-on sex scenes in the show, and this is where you're gonna do this. Like you just wanted to be shocking. And like on one hand, it did really give you like a, a shocking smack in the face of that character's introduction of like, whoa, okay, this character is totally a hedonist. But at the same time, it was like, all right, guys, come on, come on, you didn't have to do that. Like uh, Daenerys. Every scene where Daenerys burns a building down and walks out naked is just so freaking badass and resplendent and, like, best artistic nudity choices. But at the same time, there's some sex scenes where it's like, you just put titties in here so people would listen. <laughs> the dialogue's important. Get them focused. Yeah. Unless you're watching Game of Thrones with someone like my mom who fast-forwards through every sex scene, making it basically impossible to catch the plot. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that would be awkward. That would be hard, though. Um, so speaking of, of things in, in pop culture, um, oh, yeah, the, I, I got oh yeah, go for it. You don't have to answer. This. Um, so speaking of uh, new cinema, uh, I asked the guys growing up as boys, uh, we either if we were watching a movie that my parents didn't know about, it had been, we either had to leave the room or they would cover our eyes. As a lady, may I be as a lady? Because so, it was a lady being naked. I was super ridiculous sheltered as a kid. Uh, the, the story before about the Victoria's Secret catalog. Right, 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 My right, mother right. actually called Vic, the Victoria's Secret main office as like a concerned mother TM to yell at them about how just sending the Victoria catalog to anyone was so inappropriate because, you know, there's lots of people with children who don't need to see that and my daughter doesn't need to see a G-string and, like, now, it's so funny because my mom is so chill now but back then I was I was super sheltered and it was kind of a thing where I, we, we never watched anything in our house that was more than PG, ever. Uh, uh, my parents were the you can watch PG-13 when you are 13 kind of parents but mm-hmm. when it when it went further on, it became that uh, kind of as I said, we'd be like sitting watching a show, and then suddenly it would become like a sex scene or a nude scene, and like it's ingrained in my head the exact sound of my mother going Wah! and fast forwarding, <laughs> fast forwarding while shrieking at the same time. <laughs> I think my mother is the only person I know who hates nudity that watched the entirety of True Blood on purpose. Um, <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> she missed half the plot because of it. <laughs> but uh, she I, hates nudity is a strong word. She disapproves of unnecessary nudity on film. Um, but I, I, I was really sheltered. I didn't see full on nudity until I had access to the internet alone. And, you know, it was one of those, like, I accidentally, my, my love of anime stumbled me upon some unfortunate websites yeah. as a teenager. <laughs> I'm sure my sexuality was forever scarred. <laughs> I, I think we've all been down those rabbit holes. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> some of us have a hard time getting out. But as a girl, I think I, I don't know, I've always been weird about that. I've always found the hatred of nudity to be so stupid because as a kid I was like I don't get it why is it a problem like we we all have we all have these parts we all look a certain way I don't I, I never understood 
I, I famously, when I was in high school, I was known as like the prude girl who got embarrassed by everything, and because I had been so sheltered that I was so easily embarrassed. And my friends at one point were, oh, well, we don't want to play truth or dare with you because you never do anything. You're no fun. And I was like, fell for that trap, hook, line, and sinker. Fine. The next thing you dare me to do, I'll do it no matter what. And it is. I, I still haven't gotten past it with the friends who still know me from then because they were like, well, we dare you to show us your boobs. And I walked around for like 15 minutes yelling about, there, there, see, it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal. <laughs> now you've seen them, now shut up. <laughs> because I just always thought it was so stupid. And like the idea, you know, when I was doing bikini competitions and I would change in front of the other girls and they'd be like, oh my God, I've heard of you. You're that girl who just like walks around naked. And I'm like, oh, the 10 square inches that we're not going to show on stage in three seconds. Ooh, no. It just, I have never understood the huge taboo. It's always been so silly to me. I mean, like there's, you know, obviously covering your bits has a history and protecting them from the elements and protecting yourself. And there isn't, you know, the people who are like, oh, there's literally nothing sexual about a woman's breasts. Well, no, that's not true. They are inherently a sexual aspect of the body. Human Humans are one of the few species where the females have breasts when they're not lactating. It is specifically a sexual attraction feature. That's true. However, the, like, societal craziness around nipples is also dumb. It's, it goes both ways. So, you know, as a kid, I was super sheltered from the female body, but I never really understood why. I would, you know, I'd be that kid who stops in front of the Victoria's Secret for way too long and is like, What? <laughs> but, you know, I, I got made fun of in school because I, I always found the female body really artistic and would draw lots and lots and lots of women in lots and lots of sexy outfits. And people would be like, what's wrong with you? Why do you draw those girls? Because it's pretty. Is that, is that how is that how your your costumes start? Is, is drawing? Um, some of them, yeah. Um, not all of them. It, it's kind of either I'll draw the costume and then try to find or make it, or sometimes I'll find the costume and then I'll draw something around that. Uh, many of my costumes, when I'm putting it together, the first thing I'll do is draw it to see how it's gonna look. Okay. Um, so do you ever just like like add something like this or just? Yes, that has that totally has happened. Uh, my first full steampunk costume that I put together was based on a pair of shorts that I bought at a thrift shop that were kind of like a short, puffy Victorian pantaloon style. And I bought these shorts, and then I was online, and I saw a picture of a girl in a, a corset with an airship harness. So I drew a picture of a character wearing the shorts that I already owned with kind of a corset airship harness based on what I'd seen online, and then I set out to find the rest of the costume pieces and build that costume. And, and that'll happen a lot. I'll just have, like, one accessory that I'll buy, and then I'll spend the next year buying things to build a costume around just that one piece. Or uh, someone who doesn't cosplay, I'm, I'm pretty, I don't like are some of these outfits? What? Oh, go. And some of these outfits, are they like the corsets and stuff? Are they comfortable? Some of these things I'm seeing ladies wear, I'm like, oh man. I, don't. I mean, like, first like, of all, everyone wearing a corset in this weather has my respect. Okay. Every single one of them. I cannot. I, oh my god, that must be hell. But. <clears throat> 
corsets are not as horribly uncomfortable as people think they are, uh-huh. but they are not comfortable. They're not going to be. Like, a, a dress isn't comfortable. Like, if you're wearing, like, a prom dress, it's not comfortable. High heels are not comfortable, but they're also not the excruciating torture devices that people think corsets are. You know, I will tell people famously that high heels have been scientifically proven to cause more medical problems than corsets. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of the, oh, it's worth it because I look cool. And then there's a little of the trying to make it comfortable. With the corsets, I actually, I, I will tangent on corsets all day because I love them and I always have. But a good corset does not hurt. If you put on a corset, and there are man corsets, so that's not out of the question. Okay. But if a, if one puts on a corset and one is immediately in pain, one should take that corset off immediately and not wear it because it's probably ill-fitted to you or just ill-made and hurting you. Is it there to, is it there to shape? Is that the corsets? Uh, yes. A good corset will squeeze only your soft parts. Okay. If the corset is crushing your ribs, no. Don't do that. Don't do that. If the corset's crushing your hip bones, same things. I, when I was younger, I had a bad corset that crushed my hip bones, and I didn't know any better than to just wear it because I thought corsets were supposed to hurt. And I ended up with, like, scars on my hips because I, they actually, like, scraped my skin. Oh, wow. So now I know better. <laughs> now I know much better than that. But not all my costumes are comfortable. Some of them are super uncomfortable, but none of them are actively painful. Do you use that... Is that uncomfortability in your character in your head? Is that that, or is that just? Uh, I, I admit, no, that I, I don't. I totally do subscribe to the superhero costume uh, law when it comes to my costumes. It is like, oh yeah, I'm totally a warrior huntress in a leather corset. <laughs> but you know, then part of that is, you know, I do kind of get that into like when I do the strip teases. Sometimes I'll factor in like, oh, I'm taking this outfit off so that I can climb. Like I did a I did a, a, a dragon type outfit where I I did a, as I was slowly climbing higher up on this mountain I lost more clothes until I'm like in this little cave outcropping with just the sword and nothing like and this is my nest. Absolutely. <laughs> RPG armor rules. The smaller, the more powerful. That's true. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, I think we're coming to a close here. I don't have any more questions. Adam, do you? Do you, do you have any, besides your stuff, uh, do you have any recommendations on steampunk or manga or, I mean, anything you're into? Would you recommend anything, anything in any medium in the world that you're into that you want other people to... Oh my gosh, just put me on the spot, why don't you? Um, well, I mean, let me just pimp out my company real quick. I work for an amazing uh, steampunk and fantasy costuming and prop company called Brute Force Studios. We make everything from humorous steampunk pins to fully automated mechanical arms uh, and everything in between. It's actually the company that made my dragon armor as well. And they are awesome. If you haven't heard from them, then you should absolutely check them out. Brute Force Studios by uh, Thomas Williford is the company owner. Now you said, not to interrupt you, but you said that you, you made stuff besides costumes, right? You make stuff for that company? Uh, yes, I do. I am, I'm still learning, but I do a lot of the leather work with them. Uh, I 
leather work is definitely the thing I'm best at. I also do a little bit of sewing for them, you know, detailing, that kind of thing. I have done some design work for them before because the, the owner of the company doesn't draw, so when people want sketches, a lot of the time I'll be the one doing the design sketches. Do you, do you, do you throw that leather work back in your costuming? Absolutely. Uh, most of my leather accessories are made by me or the company. I, I love making leather accessories. I, I have a background in ceramics, and I found that working with leather is actually very similar to a slab building with ceramics in a way. When you're, you know, kind of cutting these flat shapes and then making something out of them. Okay. And uh, where do we go to know, find out more about uh, Bird Force? Uh, we are on Facebook and Instagram most predominantly. Okay, and then there's group. also the, the Etsy shop, which is because last year at Comic-Con, our website crashed because we were so popular. Oh, no. And so we're working on uh, getting a better website, but we have an Etsy shop currently. Okay, and that's just... going to crash. It's one of the better reasons for it to crash. Absolutely. And that's just BruteForce.com? Uh, BruteForceStudios.com. BruteForceStudios.com. Okay, perfect. Um... Yep, and we are coming to a close now. Uh, so, Amy, do you have any questions for us before we before we call it a day? What do you fear most? Ooh. Uh, actually, large groups of people. Daniel had to drag me down here. Same, <laughs> no, bro. Same. <laughs> Daniel's like, we're gonna we're gonna interview Amy. Well, I'm like, I don't want to talk to strangers. I I feel you. That's a big mood, man. I I had to like double dose of my anxiety. That's a great big mood. I I, I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Yep. Uh, So, how do we find out more about Amy Wilder? Where do we go? Uh, well, you can find me on uh, Instagram is the social media I'm most active on right now. Uh, so I, I am very active on Instagram. Uh, I have a Facebook and a Tumblr as well that I need to pay more attention to. Uh, if you want to see my more raunchy work, you can follow me on Patreon. It's all Amy Wilderness. All my social media is Amy Wilderness because I think I'm clever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that is, that's how you find me. You can also find me through Blue Force Studios. I model a lot of their work. All right, sounds great. Well, thank you very much, Amy. I appreciate you being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. It's been amazing. So we've got about half an hour or so, so we're going to aim for that. All right, uh, that's time to introduce Just hit and bowl me. This is a lot like our pleasure. It is. Normally, we're just like over here talking about a whole I give you a countdown. Yeah. Well, I'm going to listen to you. It's only 10 minutes. Adam is great about the hit and ball trick. We'll just be talking, waiting for him to get the tech and stuff. And he'll reach over and hit the microphone. It's like, oh, yes, we are talking about cannibalism on the Himalayan mountains. Thank you. Our buddy Ash always loves doing the like the Michael Sarton. He'll just start with the phrase, like, and that was the second time I got herpes. And then they'll be like, oh, hello, how are you? So, welcome to the Image Control Podcasting. I am here with the Scallywags uh, at this year's Big River Steampunk Festival. Uh, gentlemen, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves real quick? Hello, hello. I'm Randy Bones. I am Robin Banks. I'm Frankie. I'm Little Beard. Megan. That's great. Uh, so, for those who may not know who you are, you guys are a, a pirate themed comedy troupe. Is that yeah, yeah? Which, that's someone. It's actually a comedy themed pirate troupe. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we I shoot for comedy. Explained. Sometimes don't hit it. I was like, uh, okay, what are we? Yeah. We, I mean, we do stuff other than than pirate stuff sometimes, but mostly focused to pirate. 
it, we've done this for so long that even if we don't do pirate stuff, people look at us and go, like, we'll do zombie stuff, and people go, oh, look, zombie pirates. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but yeah. Uh, so how did you guys get started with the troop? Uh, uh, really bored and could never get laid, so. Uh, now we... Adam was chewing. That's how it works. Um, now, it, back in the day, my brother and I used to go to Renaissance fairs, and we, we always looked at people on stage and said, hey, we want to be that. And I'm giving you a condensed version of this, but because we've been around for for 20 years, we've been doing this. And um, so we wanted to do it. And when we first started, before we got hired at a gig, uh, we were doing a promo, like a video promo. And we were doing audience participation. We had friends show up. Uh, Big in here was one of the friends that showed up. We pulled him up on stage as an audience volunteer. Uh, so he he's kind of been there from the beginning, even though originally it was me and three other people. Uh, one of them was my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, and has learned that this fart joke stuff is not for her. Well, <laughs> apparently she couldn't get laid either. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? Uh, what are we talking about? No, we... Uh, yes. So, so we, we did this for a number of years. Uh, we, we were doing it for maybe maybe about a year, and then Biggin jumped on right then. And uh, he was traveling around with us anyway, jumped on, started doing the shows. Uh, we wrote a couple shows. It used to be we wrote like a new one every year. Uh, right now we're pretty well known for three or four staple shows that we do. Um, then years later, we've, we've had a number of members have come and gone. Not, not in a bad way, just people grow up. And uh, Robin joined, what, 14 years ago or something like that? Yeah, uh, about 16. 16 years ago. Bones, we got about four years ago. Five, maybe. Five, and um, I'm the new one. Thank you. Yeah, we just got him a couple months ago. You notice the less gray in the beard is what gives it away. Yeah. You have been here since the beginning, so you're five years. Yeah, you've been at Big River since the beginning for sure. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, that was actually really fun to see. Because they set it up in that parking lot back right there. Yeah, I don't it know if you guys saw it. It was sure. very open, and that's pretty much what it was. There was some tents. And now it's just... The, the first year, I, I was um, been doing the Scalawags for about 20 years. For a short time, I did another comedy sketch group called uh, Beard and Bean. And uh, we'd gotten hired, and the guy who did it with couldn't show up. So I turned to the Wags. That first year, Big River happened. We came here, and the whole thing was in that little parking lot where that red and white tin is over oh, there. Yeah. Oh, wow. The whole festival was right there. And a lot of it was improv. They're like, hey, have you ever done like a costume contest before? And we're like, sure, <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> uh, and no it, wasn't, it wasn't poorly organized or anything. It was actually really well organized. It just it wasn't big enough yet. And it has now grown into this huge thing. And, and we absolutely love it here. So. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, um, we have taken over about four-ish blocks of downtown Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, maybe a little least. bit bigger. And then there's the uh, the vendor area down by the river. Yeah, oh, the, yeah, that grass area, the Midway Park, is absolutely huge. Um, that's at least uh, like a soccer field full of vendors. So yeah, Big River Steampunk Festival is is significantly larger than a little parking lot now. Right. Oh yeah. That's part of the charm of it is they have blocked off this whole downtown area. That whole old area where you can just wander through and see the architecture. The old shops. It's, it's all Drink every time you read Mark Twain. original drinking game. It's like, hey, I got an idea. Anything you see that's Mark Twain related, you have to take a drink. There is an actual video on our blocks. website. <laughs> yeah. We're just going through we're we're very far. It's <laughs> awesome. Do you guys... Being here, being here for five years, you guys have like returning fans every year. Oh, easily, easily. Uh, matter of fact, this year has been a little weird for us for sure because uh, 
uh, normally we do shows on Main Street, and I also MC the event, so I'm like running the costume contest or doing opening ceremonies, so people see all that. Uh, this year, instead of us doing all our shows on Main Street like normal, they wanted to do some specialty shows. So like we did the Pirate River Boat Cruise. Uh, the show you just saw us finish up was a, a more um, private pirate game show kind of thing. Uh, so, so this year's weird because we have all these fans come up going, hey, when can I come see your show? When can I come see your show? Uh, and it's like, well, you, we're only doing specialty shows now. Which and, is, until Monday. Until, until Monday. We're doing one for everybody on Main Street on Monday. So um, uh, that that is kind of thrown a kink into the way we do things. Completely yeah. threw me off though because like I'm, normally it's like when's our next show? And you, you get ready and you've got so much time in between, whether it's taking care of personal business like hygiene or whatever, or hey, I got time to go eat between these two shows. Now it's like we got how many hours? <laughs> wow! I'll go drink. I'll go do this. Which has been the benefit because they they treat us like gold here, and they they said you guys should get out and instead of just working the whole time, get out and enjoy. Uh, thing is, we do enjoy performing, so and plus it gets us good tips. Yeah, but so it's nice to get out there and uh, uh, actually perform and do stuff. Uh, so we every once in a while we'll even stop and just do some improv stuff. Like uh, we did the riverboat last night, so we stopped and for a bunch of fans we did uh, a number of adult themed songs in the park. Just about twenty minutes of a show. And it was great. I, uh, I thought I heard you guys doing some of that when I was uh, heading to the uh, burlesque show last night. That was probably it, yeah, that yeah. one we did in the park, because that's why we didn't make it to the burlesque show last night. <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Yeah, some, some of those songs are the get you fired kind of songs. Please. Oh, I was just saying memories of the burlesque show. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I felt the table raise a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, trust My me, pants that didn't get shorter. Oh. <laughs> it, it, burlesque show has always been one of our favorite shows here. The, the first year, uh, they did the burlesque show, and um, we did a little kind of adult show afterwards. Um, the second year, we were a little nervous because they didn't have Sammy, who is gold. Uh, Sammy Tramp, the MC's at. They didn't have her doing the MC yet. Um, so there was another troop here, which we got along with great, and... Um, they didn't know who they wanted to MC it. So they said, well, should we have the Pirates do it or these other guys? And everybody just kind of said, just have them both do it at once. <laughs> so they got this, like, really sophisticated, we'll say hipsterish group from sure. Chicago yeah. and and us Kansas Pirates. <laughs> so we did this whole bit where they were had sophisticated body humor and we were just dirty, filthy people. And so we'd get up on stage and just bash each other continuously back and forth and it worked like a champ oh no it, it did uh, work and it was all done in good time it was actually me and Biggin sitting on the front stage waiting for everybody to fill in mm-hmm. and we're just sitting there joking around and trading you know just jokes and laughs pretty soon we're like I'm gonna load my cup glass get a glass I got a glass we're just passing the glass <laughs> we're just kind of goofing around people are sitting there watching and applying like you know yeah, it's because they thought you were Statler and Walter yeah, they, they thought we were doing like a bit and we're like no we're just drinking actually yeah. Yeah, you're not waiting we're waiting for the show to start. We're not we're pretending to be alcoholic pirates. We are. <laughs> this is still like my favorite memory of that. It's like, what in the world's going on here? What, uh, what, what are some of your guys' inspirations uh, that you guys... What are some of your inspirations? I can guarantee none of us will say Johnny Depp. I can guarantee that right now. Uh, that's the first thing people say is, oh, do you love Johnny Depp? Yeah, I'm not going to say he's not a great actor and everything like that. As far as, you know, the Jack Sparrow thing, I'll Brilliant. see so many hundreds of Jack Sparrows through the years. We were actually doing the pirate gig well before the Pirates of the Caribbean hit the theaters. So, 
we had a little gimmick that we did every now and, yeah. and then at some of the fairs because you'd see somebody do it, and they'll play back a lot of the time. So we'd have a little stable pad in the hand, and we walk around and go, all right. Because so there were so many Jack Sparrow impersonators, yeah. yeah. Braids are out of which say something. No, that's off. Okay, why? No swagger. Okay. How about the island? No, that island is just over the top. That's way too much. No. But inspiration-wise, um, we, we all had different groups we look up to. Still now, even. Uh, there's groups that we work with now that came a long way after us that we look at and go, I want to be more like them. Um, <laughs> I want to throw a real big name out there. Go ahead. The comedy aspect of what we do. It might be the same one I'm about to ask. Mel Brooks. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. See, I was thinking telling you what, there's a whole lot of real funny stuff that guy's got. Yeah. We, we all come from that generation, Mind Python, Mel Brooks, right. that kind of. Uh, we do. Because those that listen, well, not Frankie. <laughs> those listening on the podcast can't see us old party pirates back here. Uh, and me. Um, the, the one for me, if you ever go to Ren Fairs here in the Midwest, there was a guy called Axel Desai. Uh He was probably the, one of my biggest influences looking up to. Uh, he'd play a, a drunk lush on stage. It would just sing dirty songs and tell jokes and stuff. And um, I just absolutely loved him. First gig I ever got hired to play, they put me on stage with Axel Desai. And I was so nervous. I was, oh, it was tough. But... Uh, uh, I love it. And now, Axel will, he, he loves coming and doing shows with us, seeing us 20 years later. It's its amazing. So that, that's one of my good ones. Uh, do you guys have inspirations? I could tell you, but you're not going to believe me. Okay, let's hear it. Pretend to the group, okay? Okay, so okay. I've actually known these guys for at least 16 years. Oh, the answer is us. I can buy that. But yeah, it really was. Oh, was it? That was so Because <laughs> we did Whoa. the Canes. We're doing this these Scottish characters. And I was like, those are pirates, but they don't look like... Ooh, it was my own line. <laughs> I like that. So, yeah, that was kind of... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you were performing before you met us. You were doing the yeah. McCain Scottish yeah, McCain, act. And, uh, and the Italians, the Venetian uh, ambassadors, you know, we come over and... Uh, Jeff would say one thing in Italian, then I would just completely mistranslate it. So then he'd be like, <laughs> Smack me on the back of the head. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's not what he said, sorry. So we would do a lot of, a lot of that kind of stuff. And then finally, it was actually Robin Banks that talked me into joining. I was like, all right, I gotta do this, I gotta try it. Well, with, with you, I know that a couple times, like we, we were short a member, and we said, hey, let's try to get Jeff or Jamie from, from your show. And, and uh, you guys, you were always busy, couldn't do it. So it took us years to get to recruit you. And then the last bit I really wanted to, too. I was like, oh, i got to get through school. Because I knew there was no way I'd be able to focus and do both. Like, right, yeah, so. yeah this, this job doesn't pay well enough to go to school <laughs> and do this job. <laughs> I guarantee that. I've got limited brain space here. What about you, Robin? Do you have I, I, was, I was always inspired by like the classic... Uh, dirty Mouth stand-up comics, the George Carlin, the Rodney Dangerfield, John Balby, John Balby. Yeah, that's your that's um, your go-to. So typically, if if they had shows that <laughs> my parents wouldn't let me listen to, and they let me listen to a lot, <laughs> then I appreciated their humor. Uh, I, I see things all the time, like Rodney Dangerfield on stage, and a heckler yells out, "How big is your member?" And without even thinking, he looks out in the crowd and says, What, don't you remember? <laughs> That's still one of my favorites. Yeah. I, I hear things like that, I remember them, and I think, I want to be that good. So. 
I'm, I'm curious what the puppy has to say for his influence. Because if you say like Justin Bieber or something, we're all leaving. No, it's actually you guys. Oh, it's uh, yeah. Jamie already used that one. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't actually been performing at all before I got into it. No. And Jamie was, but um, you guys uh, needed some help and asked me and. I had watched a lot of your shows and we were still having Yeah, <laughs> which it does boil down to, uh, to us because a lot of people ask, "How do you get new members?" Like, "Oh, I bet you go out and you find these other performers and recruit." It, it boils down to a couple things. Number one, can we get along with that person? That's a big part because when you're traveling on the road, it, it's a it's a camaraderie thing. Number two, could I handle being in a car for seven hours with that person? Those, those <laughs> yep. are the two biggest yep. things. Yep. Three, not do they have a sense of humor to tell the jokes we have. Do they have a sense of humor to take the jokes we're going to tell about them? If we can get those th- things, we're golden. And that's where Frankie fit in, unfortunately. Yay! So. <laughs> <laughs> what have we gotten into? And then we've got to ask ourselves, can we handle their significant other? Yeah. <laughs> but your significant other's all right. She, I can get away with that. Okay. Sorry. Uh, no, no, so, uh, so we're uh, writing. How do we talk a lot about the writing process? Is there what is what is your guys' writing? <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible process. Uh, it's very long and drawn out. Very long. Uh, we, it used to be uh, I would write pretty much everything and then kind of run it by people. Uh, over time, we as we rehearse stuff. Um, yeah, uh, we would just kind of add stuff in. So when new people, like like when Bones uh, joined or Frankie, we can't even give them a script because the scripts were written up 15, 20 years ago or something, some some of these shows. And uh, they'll go, well, this doesn't match up at all because we end up ad-libbing so much we just remember it. So right now when we do write a new show, it pretty much comes with, hey, I've got an idea. Like, for example, right now uh, we're working on a, one called Dungeons and Pirates. And uh, um, so kind then, a, the idea is a role-playing game turned into, you know, an interactive audience skit. Absolutely. So, like on that one, Bones came with the idea, wrote a rough outline, like, uh, Very rough. Yeah. Uh, "Hey, we're going to do in three parts. We always have a beginning, a middle, and an end." Uh, so it's like, "Hey, here's the idea. I want the idea. We get some people up on stage, run them through a D and D game, but we do it in our regular comical way." So then we just sit around, start telling some jokes, write an idea, and as long as we have an ending to get to, the whole thing ends up being improv when we're sitting at Biggin's house having beers. We just start filling in blanks, start adding stuff. That's called wagging it up. Wagging it up. (laughs) (laughs) And and when we're wagging up a show, the most common phrase said is, oh, that's funny. We can't use it. Yeah, we can't use it. (laughs) There's a lot of jokes we'll tell. It's like, you could never do that in public. If you want to get hired again, right? (laughs) Uh, we, matter of fact, this weekend we were going to do a special show called the Fat and Happy Show, where we get together in the bar and, and have food and dinner with fans, um, and then we they get to hear all the stuff that we will never do on stage, uh, and fans love that stuff. Um, so we we've thought about that, but that kind of stuff happens. The show you just walked into, the game show, um, it is something we tried for the first time this weekend. Mm-hmm. And like yesterday's show, today's went much better than yesterday's because we'd already done it once. We wagged it up a little bit. So uh, we will take notes from today's show. Uh, when we get home, write it down. And by this time next month, we'll have a show out of it. So That's that's really interesting that it all kind of stems from improvisational yep. that you just turn into a thing. And so is there like a really steep learning curve when like when uh, Frankie joined? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> 
and I'm going to throw Frankie under the bus. Has he screwed something up? Oh no, we've screwed it up for him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he'll, he'll always go like, "That's not what you guys said yesterday." And it's like, "No, we thought about it. We had a drink, and this is better." Uh, <laughs> I think what's funny though is if we look at the comparisons, like you know, the whole Pirates of the Caribbean thing, and everybody always says, "You know, it's more like guidelines." Right. Yeah. That's kind of what we do when we're doing the writing thing. You know, you got the, the body of the show, so you have a general direction, guidelines. Right, right, right. So it's like we know how we're going to start, and we know how it should finish. And then we get in the middle of it and go, no, leave that line out. And then it would just go, go, go. And then after a while, it just morphs into, here it is. Yeah, and, and then we get up on stage and somebody in the crowd says something and it, something hits our head and it's like, I'm going this way. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of improv. I think one of the biggest barriers that new guys like Frankie will run into is, uh, A, we don't always write down for a script. Uh, B, we, we have certain uh, ticks with each other we can do. So like today I might cue in on a joke like when we did the dove thing and I said, oh, the dove is the international symbol of love and you looked at me and said, it's a swallow. A swallow is the international symbol of trust. <laughs> so that's a joke we've used in the past, but it came apart in a number thing, another thing. So we said, okay, let's just use that. That'll now be part of the show and never written down. Uh, however, we're trying out some new songs. Frankie can learn a song like this. I mean, right. like, he knows the song, knows all the words. And even better yet, he can sing. Ooh. We are not as good at singing. <laughs> Individually, we can be okay, but we don't harmonize as well. So um, uh, that's been very frustrating for him because he'll be like, hey, let's, let's do this song. And like two or three of the guys will get it, and the rest of us will just be like, can't we do this like a bunch of drunk pirates would? So I think that's a, a learning curve that's yeah. been a little difficult for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you were trying to explain to me the other day. No, that's three, five, two, four, harmony. I don't care. <laughs> well, I think the fun thing about the, the approach of not being able to harmonize, because it's possible that we actually really got down and hunted down, honed up, and, and learned. You know, Tried real hard. Yeah. But there's so many singing pirate groups yeah. out there now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're comedy, so it's like, okay, well, let's make it funny. Well, let's slaughter the hell out of that song then. Yeah. You know, and purposely make it way off key. Yeah. I, I will say from the performances that I've, that I've seen, the the that method is a lot more engaging for me personally. Because it, it ties into your character. It's more realistic for me. Um, the, the, it reminds me of uh, there are, are video games where you can hear sea shanties as you sail, and it reminds me going back to that rather than like a barber barbershop quartet where everyone can right. sounds so perfect. I, I think part of that um, reflects into the we don't say we have fans, we have friends, and it's that same mentality where they always go like, oh no, I feel like you guys are actually screwing around with us. It's it's actually like a bunch of drunk buddies getting together and doing something, and not just you're the talent on stage performing at us and not with us. And um, in and so. in some cases, we are a bunch of drunk buddies. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. What? Well, oh, I want to ask this question. Uh, I read and listen to a lot of interviews with stand-up comics and bands, and they talk about how uh, they they actually so they go up on stage, and it's one thing to to perform in front of people that love them and no matter mm-hmm. what they do, but they actually kind of dig going up in front of people who don't know them and then fighting and winning over the crowd. Oh yeah, and that's real fun too because if you get a crowd that hasn't seen us before, we can use all the really old material. Yeah, we don't have to come up with nothing yeah. new. Uh, <laughs> but. Oh, go oh no, I was going to say, uh, we, we run into that a lot. We do like new people, and we like winning them over. Sometimes we, it's tough. We ran into that last weekend, though. The last weekend? Because we did a um, new festival where we didn't have a, a huge fan base. Right. Um, there are times we go in, and it's like, hey, new people, we're going to win them over, no problem. Uh, fans make it better. 
Last weekend, uh, we did go to one, and we had to train the audience, is what we say. Because uh, some people, like, will do the ratings at the beginning. We let the audience vote how dirty the show gets. And a lot of them, they're like, oh, this bit you're doing is funny as heck. Let's applaud. Let's make sure you're doing the dirtiest show possible. And then we actually start doing a dirty show, and the faces go blank. Because they had no idea. They're like, oh, I thought this whole thing was a bit you were doing for ten minutes. And it's like, no, we were actually making sure. Hey, um, so apparently, you bit. <laughs> but but there's a lot of times it's good. Like when we go do, we'll, we'll just go do shows with stand-up comics sometimes. And since we have such a different way of doing things, we have the gimmick of dressing like pirates. We, we almost always went over those crowds. Um, the, the real hard part, though, is that, like, again, last weekend we had the, one of the days which was extremely hot here. And we have the oil painting crowd. Right. It's where it's like, you know, you can see them, it looks like they're just melting. And, it's, you know, they're like, and they look like an oil painting because they don't move. Right. <laughs> and you get all done, and they'll come up, and they'll, you know, they've even tipped and everything like that. And they'll tell you what a great time they had in the most miserable town. <laughs> they want to find shade and something to drink and, and you're nice you're fine but I gotta go this way you know so it's like hey yeah yeah loved it goodbye guys that actually reminds me I can tell a short story uh, based yeah, okay Winfield. so we're in Winfield, Kansas visiting a Ren Fair not performing nothing and while we're there some of the other performers are like you guys gotta get up and do a show we're like nah nah we don't want to interfere it's not our we're like no get up and do a show so when we get up and do it, like, all the other performers make a big deal out of it, bring everybody to our show. So suddenly we're feeling like rock stars. We're like, oh, we're so cool, let's do this. So we get up and we do our cleanest show, probably. Uh, and as we're doing the show, we're hitting jokes that we know kill. And the other performers are laughing, but the entire audience, probably, I don't know, 50, 60 people, not a word, not a laugh, not a nothing. And we even start making jokes about the crowd just being totally blank like children of the corn blank and um so we're we're a little curious we get through the whole show no reaction from the audience even when we do our last song and we we know we always get applause nothing and i turn as we're we're putting up our props and i look at the guys and i go well that totally bombed and then i think it was you big and pointed it and he goes look i turn everybody in the audience has lined up in three single file lines like yeah, very children to the corners <laughs> and perfect lines, and they're just standing there. I'm thinking, oh, maybe they're waiting to exit somehow through our stage. And so I go up to the first guy and I go, hey, I'm sorry. Uh, and he goes, oh, I just want to let you know your show was very good and I wanted to shake your hand. Well, thank you. I shook his hand. He got out. Next guy in line comes up to me, very good show, shook my hand. That's how the whole thing went. Everybody enjoyed it. And just shook our hands one at a time. Yeah, and I looked wow. for a bottle of sanitizer and away the hell out. <laughs> I was like, we got to go over here. Yeah, no, that's I really It was that. very weird. But that, it's that whole thing of trying to win over another crowd. It's like, yeah, we won them over, but we never want to do that show again. Never want to go back there. Never want to nothing. So. Yeah, that's the thing. Is, is a lot of the stuff that we do, we have fun doing it because we know we can cut up with each other. But you know if the audience is having a really good time and you get that feedback... You know, I don't know if you want to call it energy vampire or whatever, you know, but, you know, having a, a little bit of a, a, a what's the one empath, mm-hmm. you know, you can feel energy. And if people are really having a bad time, you're going to know it, and you're kind of going to, and everything's downhill, you know. But if everybody's having a great time, you get it all done, and get out the show, and say, man, what'd you think of that? That was awesome, man. Yeah. You know? So is that, is, which is, is that what 
bring is that, is that the draw back to the stage? I mean, what's the it? Sure draw? as hell ain't the money. Because you, <laughs> <laughs> you, you said you've been around for twenty plus years. Right. What's the? I think it's that it's the camaraderie going on the road with your friends and doing stuff. Uh, it's the don't get me wrong, we all fight like brothers too. But we right. all it, it's the funness of getting together and doing stuff. Um, and and there's a little bit of uh, uh, ego involved where you get to get on stage and people you know it's and and getting to get out and meet because all the all these like I say friends instead of fans we get here we got tons of friends that come here just to see us yeah. we get to sit down we get to have a beer we get to do whatever they'll come watch this same stupid show they've seen twenty times already and laugh genuinely and laugh yeah because you know, they have fun with it you know I think another one of the things is there's a lot of we've, we've talked about this before you go to certain fairs. Certain places you know you're going to see certain people, right. you know, and when you get there and you see them, it's like, the weekend's going to be good because I've seen these people, you know, and there's some of them I just, family, yeah. yeah, I get to stop and I get to talk to, there's a couple times I was late to get into shows because I was sitting talking with certain friends I don't get to see, but maybe once or twice a year, and, you know, the husband of the two, of the, hey, uh, you know, he's got a show. I said, yeah, what time is it? He goes, you were supposed to be on in two minutes. <laughs> oh, hell. You know, my butt doesn't run. If I'm running, there's a problem. You should keep up. <laughs> you know? it, it's sad. I've got, I've got people that come watch our shows that actually know more what's going on in my life than, I, than some of my family. Because they follow you on social media and they, they keep up. And then you'll see a cousin in Colorado you haven't seen in months. And, and uh, they have no idea. You know, it's, it's nice. It's, it's the community, I think, that keeps us coming back. And then every once in a while, that fair that pays really, really well. Right. <laughs> so you guys all have your, your various pirate personas. Um, what did you do to create that person? And are you guys kind of like in uniform now? Or do you guys have kind of a various costumes that you wear as your, your pirate persona? Actually, it's laundry day, so we yes. just <laughs> what we have. Oh, right. There are yeah. times where I feel more comfortable in garb anymore than I do in my regular clothes. Um, a lot of times we just refer to it as garb. Sure. Because like, it's not like a costume. Like, I went down to the Halloween store and bought my costume. It's like, no, you, you get all this stuff custom made, and then a lot of times it's like, oh, it's garb. feel more comfortable in it sometimes than I work regular clothes. When we all do have a number of costume outfits, mm-hmm. garb. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, we, when we go to Comic-Cons a lot, we do the Pirate Justice League. So I'm like, oh, I'm Pirate yeah, Aquaman, yeah, yeah. there's Pirate Batman, we got Pirate Shazam, he's... Pirate Robin, because he's Robin stretch, Banks. right? <laughs> I needed to say that before you go, technically Robin wasn't in the Justice League. Um, and then we got Pirate Superman. Uh, and then, steal your beer? Like Isla down there, she'll do Wonder Woman sometimes. We'll all do different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so Frankie's woman will do Hot Girl. Yep. Um, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so it's not always just pirate stuff, but people were pretty much recognizing. Like I say, if we do something else, people assume it's pirate. Um, now I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> oh, uh, how did you guys come across uh, your personas? Oh, our personas. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're extensions of us. Guaranteed. Uh, Except me, I'm not really a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> we, we watch a lot of other performers that go like, oh, my character is this. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, not every aspect of this is, is us, but it, the idea is if you can't get up there and play as an extension of you, the improv doesn't come... Uh, it, it's hard to do that stuff in a character. So, yeah, like, we're not actually drunk all the time. People think we are. They get disappointed if they come up in our gate, uh, mug full of Gatorade. But, uh, right. It's actually water. Yeah, it's yeah, water vanilla. Right, it's 110 degrees. <laughs> you wear thigh-high boots and tell me how you feel in eight hours. <laughs> I, think, I think, and Frankie's still been working on his name, and unfortunately we've been calling Frankie for so long, but the original idea yeah. was the... 
uh, we, we tried to come up with something kind of funny, like Randy Bones. It's, right. you know. Well, and there, one of the things we were pointing on a little while back was <coughs> it needs to be something with B. Has to be. <laughs> it just kind of happens. Banks, beard, big and kind of should be a B. So, you know, I, otherwise it's going to be like a sesame one. Treat me one of these things, not like the other. I, I was suggesting names like Buster Hyman and... Oh. <laughs> Some, some on the, we, we, we used to have a guy in the group. That's only good uh, for one show. <laughs> we had a guy in the group that had to change his name. Uh, Mac. Uh, oh, yeah. His name's Mac McGrog. He started out as Pat McCrotch. And uh, we would do, every once in a while, we do do kids shows. Those are the kids shows, Joe. So we would get there and I'd go, here's Pat McCrotch. And, and the parents, right away, would be like, we're gone. So, <laughs> Uh, so he had to change his name to Mac McGraw. But if I were to do it again, I would change my name. When I picked this, we looked at each other and we said, oh, this will be fun. We'll do it for like a year, and then it won't go anywhere. So I picked Little Beard because at that point in my life, I could barely grow facial hair. And uh, now for the last 20 years, I've had to keep this little piece of shit beard <laughs> that I can't get rid of. Uh, see, at least Big, and it's not like he's ever going to We're gonna look at him and go, you got real tiny. Right. Even if you lost weight, you would still be stocky, six foot two dude. I'm not sure. Right? How, how, how tall are you? On a good day, I'm six four. On a bad day, I'm like six three. Right? There you go. <laughs> yeah. the, some some days have been pretty bad where I've been slouched. So yeah, six two might. That's where uh, mine actually stuck though. Was we used to have another guy in the group, you know, Tim. So my real name's Tim. His brother's name is Tim Cookie, and it was uh, Big Tim, Little Tim. Yeah. Well, now his brothers put on quite a bit of pounds, <laughs> but the name's already stuck, so it's not the you know, formally known as Little Tim. You know. Yeah. You just we just ended up calling you Biggin to make it easier. That was part of the garrison. Yeah. Because we were doing a show in Mansfield. Mansfield, uh, Oklahoma. No, Mansfield, Mansfield Missouri. 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 Yeah. And I was hanging out with them after ours the first night, and they have this stuff called Loki. Alcohol. Alcohol. And I'm drinking with them, and then the next day, you know, I'm up just all chipper because, well, you know, I. I can handle some drink. And uh, one of the guys in the garrison goes, and there's that big one. And I was like, okay. There it is. It's stuck. <laughs> it's stuck, you know, so instead of big Tim, it's big one, you know. I know we've been trying to throw stuff on Frankie. Like I said, Father Guido Sarducci, I really loved. Hooker um, Lees. Hooker Lees, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, won't, he won't let us keep any of them, though. The, yeah. uh, so the, uh, the third... Of the uh, Kryptonians from Superman. Yeah, he too. really looks like the third Kryptonian Superman oh, too, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait till he puts on all black. You'll see it. <laughs> if only he were that silent all the time. I can't. I don't shut up. <laughs> yeah, you don't shut up, do you? <laughs> Sorry, we're getting off topic. No, no, but yeah, no, no, no. Hey, this is what we do. Yeah. Our podcast should be off topic. The podcast, really. Oh, there you go. Oh, <laughs> that, that was permission to go. No. <laughs> there was this incident the other day and involved a zebra. I'm just kidding. It really wasn't a zebra. <laughs> Not when it started. Yeah. Oh. You know, when the podcast gets to bestiality, we've just gone too far. I, it's not, I did not. Oh, crap. Sadly, it's not the first time. <laughs> now I want to hear the other times. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a story. <laughs> no, we could make a show out of it. <laughs> Remember, Ba means no, but Moo means maybe. So, one of the things that I noticed uh, was I was watching yesterday's costume contest. Uh huh. 
And this kind of harks back to the improv skills. And what would you say, 70% of the people in the It was amazing. <laughs> I MC costume contests at Comic Cons everywhere. I've never, and this, it's nothing on the fair. I think it was just uh, they tried a different thing with costume contests this year, so it, it didn't go the way people are used to. But yeah, 70, 75% of everybody did not show. <laughs> so I'm on stage going, you know, you know, would Scott Wilson come to the stage? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it started that way today, too, because oh, somebody no. accidentally grabbed the stack of cards from yesterday, and that was on the top. <laughs> yeah. So I started leaving the stack from yesterday, and I was like, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But once we got through that, it all went fine. Today was much better. But yeah, I, I had to kind of wing it a little bit because I, I didn't organize the contest. You just didn't see it. So you got to turn to the other people and go... So where are all these people you're handing me cards for? Uh, but Charlie from Children of Proteus, if you guys have not talked to Children of Proteus, they are epic. Uh, and he was there, and he's very good at improv, and so he kind of helps out. Even if, even if it's something as simple as a clap or a laugh, that can make a difference for somebody trying to entertain a crowd. Yeah, I felt really engaged, actually, when you were doing it, because I was watching the whole thing, I was taking uh, pictures of it, and it, it, what we were doing was, is call the name, no one's out there, three, two, one, everyone claps a single time, and we move on. I actually stole that, i got to give credit, I stole okay. that from a, a great MC named Peter Pixie, so. Okay. Not that he'll listen to this, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> no one listens to this, it's fine. Um, so, what well, huh? was really fun... <laughs> Uh, what was really fun about it was it almost got to the point when someone actually showed up, I was disappointed. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, clapping, what? yeah, clap. And, and I'm like, oh, oh, we got, okay, well, i got to do a work now. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, uh, we, we played with it a little more today when I started reading that stack where it was like, uh, I would just say, like, I feel like I'm, on, I'm getting cranked right now or, or something. And, uh, but, yeah, and people, then when somebody did show up, everybody just loved it even more. It's like, oh, yay. So... That happens a lot. We've been to a lot of events where we're doing uh, MC work or something, um, and they'll they'll go, "Hey, we got a costume contest at three o'clock. Can you MC that?" Sure. And this has literally happened dozens of times. Uh, all of a sudden, it'll be two thirty. You'll show up. Okay, guys. So, what kind of process you using? Who's the judges? Blah blah blah. And they'll go, "Oh, I, we we had nothing. We just thought you'd do it." <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, well, that's not how cosplay contests work." Uh, so we would run in circles and make something happen right there. Now, the audience wouldn't know at all. Uh, some of the contestants would figure it out, but the audience wouldn't know at all that we have just like randomly grabbed other entertainers to be judges, and we've made it all work and pulled it out of our butt real quick. Um, but it happens a lot more than you would think. I'm, I'm kind of curious, because uh, very, very jealous of, of guys, you guys go up on, anyone go up on stage and stuff, I don't know. Very much, I like to be in If if you guys were up on stage and the crowd's not feeling it, or whatever, <laughs> do you guys have like certain plan, like plan? Yeah, we walk off stage and leave. Screw, screw them, <laughs> screw them guys. <laughs> you can feel that. You can feel again back to that energy thing. You can feel that on stage with the group because you're going to know, you know, if things are off and things are starting hitting, you know. And it's like, okay, well, so let's just get through this as quickly and as painlessly as we can and just get the heck out of here. You know, and sometimes it takes a little bit and you're doing it, it's like you're trying to get done. 
And yeah. then people show up and they start engaging, interacting. And then, like he said, you know, you, you get that one or two people that get it and start laughing, and it kind of spreads. Laughter is contagious. And then there it goes. So then it's like, okay, we can do the show and finish it properly instead of, yeah, we can just go back. See you later. Bye. So it's like it's all it's pure instinctual. It's yeah. like, well, sometimes yeah. you might look at the crowd and go, okay, do they want it a little dirtier? Yeah. So you might try to push in that direction and find out, is that working? Or is it going to be Well, and we had somewhere, uh, last week is a great example. We were doing a Ren Fair. Uh, we do our pirate dating game. Oh, and yes. I screwed up the show by picking a drunk girl from the audience <laughs> to be one of the contestants. And it wasn't so much her, but the, uh, the folks that uh, she was with, they all were just drunk talking they had no idea that like we'd do a setup for a joke and then there's delivery and that kind of stuff we'd do the set for the joke and they would be confused immediately because at that point unless you just looked at them and said the word fart and they giggle they're not getting it so at that point I knew it was going rough I can look at the guys they're giving me eye contact so what I did is I said hey we're gonna do a big bonus question in this this uh, game show we're doing uh, and so they knew right where I was going we finished the show and then once we did, then we finished it with some songs because we could read the audience and tell that's the route we needed to go. Right, okay. Doesn't always work, but uh, sometimes it you know it does. Um, what what we almost suffer from worse is when we do get that feedback. Bigan was talking about we tend to keep going. Then it's like other oh, one more. We'll keep going. Next thing you know, the thirty minute show we we're doing is forty five minutes. The next act is standing next to us, going. <coughs> Let's go. And when they're feeding off you, it's easy to just keep going. Yeah, we've had one show that typically, it, it can last about 20 minutes, just just going through. Not an ad-lib or anything like that, just, just go through the show. We finished that one in 12 minutes one time because it was really bad. Yeah, so it was just, oh God, finished. And then we've had one time where everything was just hit, 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 and it was an hour. You know, and fortunately, one of the other acts that was coming up after us, they knew that, and they're like, <laughs> just keep going, yeah. And well, and like uh, Fishbones and Scurvy, who just walked up and tried to enter, you know, screw up our podcaster. He's actually our food Yeah, they're good about that. They're uh, they're the kind of group we can just jump on stage and, and do stuff with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Judas and Magnolia here. They're okay. They're okay. <laughs> so, uh, they, well, in fairness, the first part of the interview, that's what we were saying. But I ain't got the balls to say it to your face. For those listening to the podcast, we just got joined by Judas and Magnolia. Man, I can retire. You can just uh, uh, <laughs> That's a nice way of saying you talk too much. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of talking too much, I feel like we could sit and talk to you guys for hours. Um, but you guys have dinner reservations. We have our next interview to do. Uh, no, no so problem. we got to let you go. Um, Adam, do you have any final questions for them? No, I just appreciate your time. Uh, Absolutely. Thank appreciate you guys, you guys for, for uh, joining us. Um, and hopefully we didn't ask you the same boring questions. So where's this damn beer No. no <laughs> that's that's the only way we were quick witted enough to give answers. They were the same boring questions. If we actually had to think about it. Uh, I thought I always had one. No, 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 no. At least you didn't look at us and go, so what do you think of Johnny Depp? So we're good. Uh, well, I crossed that off. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so, how do we and people listening at home find out more about the Talibans? Um Well, PirateComedy.com. wanted posters. Um, right. <laughs> there's, I think there's a list on the internet. Um, Post office wall. Nope. <laughs> PirateComedy.com is our website. 
Uh, you can catch us on most, most social media. Just look up uh, The Scallywags Pirate Comedy Show. Uh, even though we've been around for 20 years, if you look up The Scallywags, there's every two years a new punk band comes yeah. out called The Scallywags. <laughs> um, but look up The Scallywags Pirate Comedy Show. Biggin's got business cards. Boy, he's professional. Ooh, fancy. Uh, also, you can catch us doing lots of other stuff, uh, lots of other events. Uh, we do a podcast called the Drunken Pirate Podcast where we get together, we drink, and just answer questions on the internet. Uh, we also and, and have a podcast called Concast, C-O-N-C-A-S-T, where we go to conventions, we interview people, we talk comic books, we talk uh, geeky trivia, that kind of stuff, because we're nerds. And uh, that, I think that's it. I think that's the best way to get a hold of us. Or drive through Kansas. <laughs> That'll be worth it. You could yeah, most, you most of the, the time catch us at our home Kansas, fairs. <laughs> yeah, you can catch us at our home fairs like Great Plains, Wichita. We do St. Louis Friend Fair. We do, we're on the road a lot. We do about 30, 35 shows a year depending on uh, uh, what it is. But. Okay, great. Uh, and, and for your podcast, where do they find your podcast at? Uh, on Facebook. the internet. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Facebook um, at Concast. Okay. And we got ConcastPodcast.com. Yeah. So. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you guys very much. I thank hope you, you enjoy the rest of your uh, you. rest of the weekend. No, this was the highlight. The rest is going to suck. Hey. Well, the best that. thing about this was it was in an AC building. Yes. <laughs> with like the strongest AC here. I like this. All right, thank you guys. And here we are back from the latest edit from Adam. Uh, we are uh, here with Judas and Magnolia from Judas and Magnolia's Daring Escapes. You got it. That's the correct name, yeah. Perfect. Um, so one of the things we want to talk about is is who are Judas and Magnolia and how did you guys kind of come to be? That's a great question. Well, we're a husband and wife team of award-winning escape artists. At this point, we've performed all over the United States and in North Africa, and pretty soon we'll be going over to Istanbul to do some shows in December. That's so But uh, at like Ruta, performing, performing from different crowds in the United States and in North right. Africa, I'm not sure, is, is it, is it diff- different type of crowds? Is it, you have to... Well, over here we mostly perform for festivals, Renaissance fairs, steampunk festivals. Over there we're performing for, say, tourist hotels. Oh, so it's not a thematic event. Instead, it's just a show for a group of people who have paid to say be at a hotel. We might perform on the roof of the hotel for the guests that are staying there. Okay. Um, and how did you guys come to perform in North Africa? That's, that's not something you hear in the Midwest very often. Right. Well, we wanted to visit that part of the world, and uh, it's nice if you can book something while you're over there. So we reached out to hotel owners to see if there's anybody over there who'd like a show. A bit of a working vacation. Though. Right. And, and how did that show go? You guys have a good time? Yeah, well, and I think for, part, for me, part of what was so fun about that was people were so excited that we actually did some teaching as well. So, yeah, so we we just did a, um, a juggling show, and then, you know, people are like, I want to know how to juggle, you know, and, and that's a beautiful thing when, when you can kind of show off the things that are exciting to you, and other people get just as excited, you know, and, and want to be in it with you, so for me that was really fun, and so I'd say it went well, you know, if, if people like it enough to say, teach me how to juggle, you know, and we're always happy to do that, so uh, anything else to yeah, it was an enjoyable experience. We'd do it again. I really like having the pyramids as a backdrop. That was a nice experience. 
So did you do the same kind of tricks that we saw this year or last year over there, or was it, did you create something that was more like Northern African themes? No, over there we did juggling shows. Okay. It's hard for us to bring our boxes and our handcuffs and our chains over there. Well, you know, you could probably put them in stowed luggage and not have a problem, but it weighs everything down, and the costs are really expensive to ship a package over there, and it would be impossible for us to ship our big boxes over. So instead we bring juggling equipment, we do juggling shows. Uh, so speaking of your shows, um, uh, Magnolia is a, is a damage control podcasting alumni. She was here last year. She was kind enough to be on our show. And last year you guys did this really cool uh, box on fire escape. Uh, I'm sure it's not the technical term, but... Uh, and <laughs> well, that's, that's what we call it. <laughs> so. uh, um, and this year, I caught you guys doing metamorphosis yesterday. And I have to say, that was incredible. It was a blink in your mistakes. So fast, so fluid. It was beautiful. Thank you. So we brought that, the metamorphosis, because in 1914, Harry and his wife, Bess Houdini, performed the metamorphosis here in Hannibal, Missouri, at the Park Opera House. So we wanted to, a bit over 100 years later, bring the same escape, the metamorphosis, and perform it for this steampunk event. Yeah, and it was fantastic. And I think I saw on your Facebook that you guys were trying to break his record. Oh, well, Harry and his wife, they promoted the show that they would change places in the twinkle of an eye, three seconds. Uh, when Magnolia and I get timed, we do the change in two seconds. So we beat Harry and Bess by one second. That is incredible. Um, is there a world record that you can, you can apply for with that? Because that seems something that... You know, I don't think it's a world record. There are other magicians who do it faster. If you want to Google something that's really impressive, look up the Pendragon's Metamorphosis. You'll see it uh, in a breathtaking short amount of time. Uh, If you thought ours was quick, see the Pendragon's. Yeah, I I was actually trying to... We're we're doing a video package this year, and I was actually trying to catch that on camera. And by the time that I got in frame and hit the record button, it was done. And I'm like, oh, I missed it. (laughs) You've still got one more chance. We're going to do it again tomorrow. So if you're here tomorrow, come on by. We'll be on that same stage. And so you can catch it again. All right, perfect. I think she's right. I believe it's 11 o'clock. Yeah, absolutely. So it looks like you're uh, debuting a couple of other new shows uh, this year as well. Uh, one that you had labeled as mind reading and a seance. Right. So we're doing a We've got a kid trolling us over here. Sorry, guys. So we've got a couple of new shows. We have a mind-reading show that we titled Magnolia Knows All. It's it's a throwback to the Victorian-era mind-reading shows. They were all the rage. And what we do is we uh, start out by doing a book test, more or less a random word is chosen by the audience from a set of three large books. And Magnolia then uses her uh, mental vibrations, as we call them, to find out which word has been chosen. And then we systematically, one at a time, read the minds of each and every person in the audience. That sounds fantastic. Um, now, since you're using everyone in the crowd, obviously there's no crowd points that, that I know has kind of been frowned upon for those kind of shows. But the, like, how did you cast and develop the show? Like, how did you 
coming to that. Right, so there was a couple of Australians back in about 1910 called the Peddingtons. Uh, they used to have a mind-reading show that was on the BBC and really enjoy their stuff. In fact, for many, many years, it was a mystery, even to magicians, how a lot of their illusions were performed. Uh, we get a lot of inspiration from their stuff and like to, to, to bring it back out. Yeah, so we're going to leave a little bit of an editing pause right here. Uh, all right, you're good? Yep. All right, cool. All right, so... Um, uh, mind reading, we're talking about the... The, uh, the Peddingtons. It was a husband and wife team. Mm, okay. uh, magicians took a long time to figure out how it was done because the mentalism wasn't created out of the normal magic tricks. So mentalism evolved out of the uh, sort of the spiritualist movement. Uh, but the Peddingtons used a different route. Uh, in World War II, Peddington, the husband, was a prisoner of war. And he was in charge of the... He was in charge of sort of secret information in one of the camps, and he invented a number of codes that he would pass information from himself to other people in the camps that couldn't be detected by the guards. So he sort of simultaneously invented a form of mentalism that most magicians were unaware of that remained a secret up until about five years ago. Uh, one, it turned out that one of the uh, people that he used to help do with the show, they were under strict instructions not to write things down. Well, this person happened to write something down and kind of had it in his closet. Well, he passed away long ago. Uh, his grandchildren inherited the house and ended up with his notebook. And after flipping through his notebook, sort of rediscovered the lost secrets of the Peddingtons. So now, to the magic community, it's a treasure trove of sort of unexplored magical devices and ideas. That's the kind of thing that you only find in like a book or a movie. That is so interesting that that is a real life thing. Now, the mentalism we were using here at the festival happened to be the same, very same mentalism that Harry Houdini used, both the word test and the reading the minds of the audience. And I have to say that of all of the, the magic tricks, I'm, I'm a huge magic buff as well. Um, one of my favorite shows is, is the Penn and Teller show that's on mm. right now. Um, and the mentalism one is always their tricks are always the one that fool me the worst really? and they always get it and I'm like how did you write that guy's driver's license number down mm -hmm. uh, so those are always so fascinating to watch um, how did you um, I, I've noticed that with your performances you have um, but always seem to have like some sort of story built into the performance. And how did you build the, the story behind the mind reading performance? Right. So we generally build stories because magic asks the audience to do something weird. Escapology and other magic. It asks an audience to, on one hand, suspend disbelief that you do this every day <laughs> and uh, pretend that uh, they're surprised that it happens. And it, when it comes to escapology, you're asking them not to suspend disbelief so much that they call the police because they think you're in danger. So you're asking them to walk a weird line. We try to get rid of that line by telling stories. So we take the focus off of the magic or the escape, and we make it just part of a narrative that you can enjoy the story, you can go along with the story, and you don't have to worry about, oh, they do that, they've done this before, or they might get hurt. It becomes a story. So that's the reason we involve the stories. Okay. What kind of process do you use to create those stories? Does it just start with like a single idea, or is there uh, like which comes first? Does the magic come first, or does the story come first? Oh, no, it's really hard to say. Uh, generally, there's one illusion that we might want to do, and then a story will craft upon that. 
but we have to have other smaller tricks to go in, other little bits of something that we might want to do. So they then fill in the pieces. So it might be a major illusion, story, then smaller bits. Our shows are also usually broken up into three parts, as I think of them when I'm writing them. Uh, there's the crowd gathering portion where I do something that might be juggling swords or a big flaming battle axe. It's pretty disconnected from the rest of the show. It's really just a big audience build-up section where I get people to hoot and holler. Then there's the story that, where the magic takes place. And the last section is sort of the hat line, where we talk to people and just to sort of pass the hat and tell some jokes. It's also disconnected from the story. So we have it in three different sections. And when writing, I sort of tie knot each of those sections and I'm aware that they're each really important to make the show work. Okay. I think I also want to just add... At, at least part of my process when we're collaborating is that um, for me, I will sit, you know, he'll, he'll kind of be saying, well, and then I think we can do this, and then you do this, and I'll go, you know what I've been wanting to do? I saw this one thing, and I love Lucy, and I've been wanting to do this, you know. And so a lot of it for me is inspiration, you know, and, and just to go back to something we were talking about earlier, we were talking about the Pendragon escape, or the uh, metamorphosis that the Pendragons do, and it's that, that kind of stuff that for me, I feel like I really immerse myself in um, studying people that I admire, you know, whether it's the Pet Dragons, whether it's uh, Lucille Ball, or Carol Burnett, or Bette Midler, or, or the Marx Brothers, or Charlie Chaplin, you know, sometimes they're just classic gags, or, you know, uh, sometimes it's a facial expression, or sometimes it's a way someone walks, or, you know, that kind of stuff that I'll think, you know, I would really like to do something like this, and it would be perfect in this spot right here, you know, and so, um, and I, I like to think that that's kind of where some of our charm comes from, it's not just the story, but the character, you know, that character development of, you know, I, there's a certain kind of voice that I use when I'm on stage, and it's way up here, you know, and it's, and, you know, but I love it because, um, and to go back, just, I already mentioned Lucille Ball, but when she sings, <laughs> if you've ever watched an I Love Lucy episode, when she sings, she sings like that, you know, and, and it's still, and it's not actually her real singing voice, but it's so funny, you know, when I can incorporate that in my character, I've got, I mean, Magnolia has an awful voice on stage. It's awful. It's grating. I literally, when we start a festival, I will go introduce myself to the vendors around us, and I'll say, I apologize in advance for you having to listen to my screeching voice. But, you know, but then the funny thing is, we can kind of pull a harpo, if you're familiar with Marx Brothers. So Harpo is this just absurd kooky character and he'll be doing something ridiculous and then he'll stop and he'll do this amazing show of skill if you've seen Marx Brothers you know that he actually plays the harp very well it's very impressive and so we'll do a similar thing where um, I'll, 
just be this absurd character on stage, and then I'll stop and I'll actually sing a beautiful song because I've been classically trained as a performer. But you wouldn't know that from my character speaking like this, you know. But I'll stop and I'll just have I'll take a little harpo moment. And then we'll get back to the zany story, you know? And so, um, for me, that's a big part of the collaboration process is, you know, we'll kind of ping-pong off of each other. And we've kind of got a basic idea of a, of a story, a plot line, but then we'll go, why don't we just add in this little chip, you know? So, so that's a big part of it for me. Something else we try to do is have a true character development. We don't see this very often at festivals. Uh, sometimes you might see a story or see something take place on stage, but you don't see true character development among the people taking place on stage. So I also I, we try to focus on having true character development of especially the female character because that just never happens on stage at a Renaissance festival or at a steampunk festival. You never see the female character evolve into something else. I think it could also be argued you don't see it a lot uh, on, <laughs> on film <laughs> or, right. in, or in literature. Yeah. Keep going. So we make sure that Magnolia's character might start out as the ditzy assistant, but by the end she's definitely running the show. And there's a lot of development for this character from starting out as the assistant who went on to stage late into the kind of pirate queen who's like <laughs> managing everything and who's in control of the audience. Okay. Absolutely. That is a really compelling part from watching the Box Escape last, last year and the Metamorphosis this year was how involved the assistant, air quotes, was in it. And uh, and I especially like the reluctant escape artist character. <laughs> um, yes. When you're, when you're creating these kind of characters and personas, what inspiration do you draw from? Like, where does Magnolia come from? Where does Judas come from? Oh, um... I already mentioned a few of mine, so I'll let you... Right, so... The character Judas... So the name first just came because I was like, well, what's a name people are going to remember? And nobody ever forgets whenever I tell them my character's <laughs> name is Judas. Nobody ever comes up to me again and says, who are you again? Never happens. Never happens. So I just wanted a really striking, memorable name. So we chose Judas, and it's really worked out well. <laughs> and now for the character, like how it comes about, um, sometimes I think back to myself, I'm like, what would a 10-year-old me like? And uh, whatever I think 10-year-old me would like... We put it on stage. Um, I feel like a lot of our show is I want to connect to families. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of body humor at festivals. Um, and I don't want that. I mean, not that I don't want that there's a place for that. I don't want our show to be that. I want our show to be compelling, high energy, entertaining, but also accessible to the whole family uh, without a worry that you're going to encounter something that's going to make you give you an uncomfortable day. I think also I just want to throw out and darling if I'm off base here jump in but you know when you think of the name Judas there's definitely a certain feel that goes with that Mm -hmm. and if you pay attention to the actual stories that we're telling he's not necessarily the hero (laughs) <laughs> right, so I feel like our stories are generally pretty macabre, um, and I feel like sometimes the audience doesn't understand that the pirate the, that the boat was taken over by pirates and everybody was murdered, and I might happen to get out of this this burning box, but I'm probably still going to die. Like these are very macabre stories where everybody dies and horrible things happen, but we do it while we dance on stage and tell jokes in a family friendly manner. Yeah. 
And so, so just just putting that out there, he's you know this character is not necessarily a hero. What um, I think, in a lot of ways, he is an everyman. I think he is relatable, you know, because everyone's had crazy things go wrong. <laughs> you know, everyone's had that day or that situation where you're like, this is not my day. This is not my day. I feel like the world is on fire, falling down around me. The sky is falling, right? And so it's relatable because sometimes all you can do is survive. Sometimes all you can do is just try to put on a smile and get through it, you know? And that's, I mean, the show is that. It's, we got to do this thing, you know, against all the odds. Against all the odds, against his, you know, assist his kooky assistant, adding ropes and adding chains and adding thumb cuffs, one thing after another, he still gets out of it. And so, even though there's generally a conflict between our characters, of you know, um, he, there, there's generally some tension between us. Um, at, at the end. You know, even though the crowd was like, yeah, put him on the chairs! You know, at the end, they're still clapping that he got it. I really enjoy seeing the humanity of people, especially in the box that gets set on fire show, because partly through the box burning, I get out of the restraints and I can see out holes. And I oftentimes I reach out with a set of keys to unlock the box, and I drop the keys. And a good one out of ten shows, there's a child who will rush towards the stage to hand me the keys. And it says something very good about humanity. Because it's a very intimidating thing to get on stage, especially to run towards a box that's on fire. But about one in ten shows, a child will jump up and run to hand me the keys to make sure I get out of this box. That is a really heartwarming moment. Especially when you don't know. Like, there's so many things that can go wrong in those types of escapes. I'm sure you're a professional, but it only takes one thing to go wrong and then it's game over, right? So, uh, for some of the more dangerous ones. Um, uh, so, those kind of things are like, is that is that part of the show? Or is that something that is... is you know, yeah, so, so, escapology is an interesting item. Um... I like to tell people it's probably one-third magic, uh, a third sort of master of mechanism, just an understanding how physical systems work. And for your last third, it's just sort of a daredevil nature. Like, the fire's real and, and everything's real. It's, it's, not, it's not illusionary. There's not cold fire I can buy from Home Depot. Like, things are really on fire. Um, when I'm underwater, I'm really underwater. Like it's, so it's an it's, it's interesting layered cake there. Yeah, definitely. And on that kind of daredevil aspect, have you ever had something that had went very, very poorly that was dangerous? Yeah, so there was one time in St. Louis where it wasn't in front of an audience. It was during a rehearsal at a venue, a dress rehearsal. A prop broke, and I ended up with a rope tied around my neck. And I get lifted up into the air. And it happens to to the... uh, the producer of the show was there, he's watching the act. He jumps up and he cuts down the rope. So I fall to the kind of fall back down to the stage and I fall down to my feet. I don't fall over. He asks me if I'm okay and I say, Oh yeah, I'm okay. And then it becomes clear pretty quick that I'm not, because I don't know who anybody in the building is, um, nor where I am, nor what we were doing. And I end up with the uh, memory of a goldfish for about twenty four hours. About every fifteen minutes my memory would reset. And I would wonder where I was again and who I was and what was going on. And I 
am told, and I sort of recall this, that the only person I remember in the whole world was Magnolia. I took out my cell phone, and I searched through, and I let her know something happened. She asked what, and uh, I say, I don't know, I'm not sure, but I know something happened, and you need to come down here. And about that same time, the producer was calling an ambulance because he realized something was wrong as well, and but I didn't know who anybody else in the room was. There people I'd worked with for years. Oh, that's that's terrifying. Wow. It was. And, um, you know, part of, part of professionalism is putting as many stock gaps as you can in place. Part of that is rehearsing, being confident in your skills, doing the research and, and your study. But, again because of the nature of what we do things do go wrong um, and you, uh, you do your best Always. you do your best and that's all you can do and you learn and you move forward and you help out other people other performers as best you can and try to pay it forward and, uh, and at the end of the day we love what we do it reminds me of a story about Harry Houdini. Um, so it's not just us that gets hurt, everybody gets hurt. It's, a, you know, it's an art form that has some danger in it. Uh, there's stories about Harry Houdini being bound in chains and handcuffs, and oftentimes he would do his under the veil of secrecy. So he would get handcuffed and wrapped in chains, and he would sort of go into a closet or a box, then he would emerge free. There were several stories of him when he would emerge free, sometimes when the chains were in a certain way or the handcuffs were too tight or something, he couldn't get out, he would come out a bloody mess. He would literally rip like patches of flesh out of himself to make space for the chains to come off. And on that same note, um, a, a circus friend of mm-hmm. ours, uh, just a few years ago, um, old, old, uh, old-fashioned Italian family circus. And uh, circus is their life. It is what they do. It's not just their job, it's their life. I think it's three generations they've performed in the circus. Oh, at least. Oh, at least. And he was doing an act that he's done for years and years and years. And it was a static trapeze act. And so he's spinning over and over and over and he falls and there's not a net he's just from the top of a circus tent from the top of the tent and uh, and he's very badly injured and has brain damage and is and will never be the same but he went back to work you know and and the 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 quote that I remember him saying in an interview was, well, what do you expect me to do? Go be a construction worker? Which is to say, this is our life. This is what we do. We don't just pick a different profession. You know, this is what we do. It's in our blood. And uh, and so he went back to circus. And he does that same act. He got back on that trapeze, and he does it again to the applause of children and families, men and women, all over the United States, all over the world, and bringing smiles to people.
people all over the world, despite your difficulties and your personal struggles and what you've been through. That's a beautiful thing, and that's what we do. That is. That is. Talk about traveling like you were someone like that. You guys travel all over the United States and all over Africa. Do you see? Do you see magic perceived, in, like magic's perceived in the East Coast in a different way? Or some, some, some areas. I don't know about. Yeah, I don't know about jaded towards magic. I do find that different audiences in different parts of the country react differently to, say, different jokes or different lines. One of the lines I like to use when I'm interacting with uh, audience members in the lane to draw them towards my show, if I see a family walking around, I might say, you good people, you look like the kind of people who'd like to see something dangerous. And in most places, people go, yes, what do you have? <laughs> when I do that in Nebraska, people say, no, <laughs> and walk away. They walk away. <laughs> Um, I just got done doing a show in Utah, and I love the audience that's in Utah, but I notice that there, if there's any lines that are even able to be construed as body, there's no laughter. All right. <laughs> well, okay, that brings another good point. Uh, I've been kind of asking everyone who's been interviewing, when you're up on stage, I'm sure magic is probably less improvisational, or at least the, the trick part. But when you guys, are, you guys, do you guys feel the crowd and be like, like you just said, I don't know, we're in, they don't really feel this. Yeah. When you two, as you guys have been working so long together, do you two like, we need to do this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we can we encourage the crowd to yell at us as part of our act. We encourage the interaction. Uh, we let them know that we can see them and they can see us. We talk about participation. So the whole show runs off the fact that the audience is yelling at us and we can hear them and we're yelling back at the audience. So we just work to respond to whatever the audience says. Um, and there are some times of day we've even noticed that the audience says less. Uh, generally around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, our audience is what we call the, the mid-afternoon slump. And uh, sometimes we'll just kind of stop and say, listen, guys, you know, you're tired, we're tired. This is what we call the mid-afternoon slump. We'll kind of do a little exercise to get people out of the slump. But, I mean, it's a true conversation back and forth. We have some stock lines we might say to kids if they're being truly obnoxious. But otherwise, we just uh, sort of flow with whatever people say, and we yell back from the stage at them if they yell something at us, and we try to have a running conversation. We aim to make contact with each and every person in our audience, at least eye contact, maybe a wink, something said. Uh, we aim to, in some way, be with each person. I know you guys probably like... You guys go home, so I know you guys probably love a crowd, it's just in the beginning. But do you guys really dig getting on there and you, you got a bunch of dated high school kids and you're like you're fighting on them over and you got do you, do you guys really dig there and you just want to go out there and you don't want to have to deal with I, I don't for someone who doesn't go up on stage because I'm extremely shy. So I very jealous of the stuff you guys do. What would you, or do you promote, or how does Well, it? so your question just, uh, what it brings up for me is that sometimes we'll get these folks, or, you know, again, regional variations, it might even feel like the whole crowd, they're just sitting there, <laughs> they're just looking at us, they're not really giving me a whole lot of energy, not so much on the facial expressions. And I swear, it's the people often who look like the, they're having the grumpiest situation who will come up after the show. They'll wait in this long line because I've got people.
people who want to take photos and, you know, want to give me hugs or want to tell me they're pirate puns or, you know, whatever. And they'll wait. And they'll come up and they'll say, that was the best show I've seen all year. Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I loved your show. And it's, it's, you know, and they just, they're not smiling. <laughs> or, you know, that was the funniest thing I've seen. And, and we hear this from other acts. I'm, I'm thinking of some of our good friends who, uh, there's one town, one festival they do every year. And it's, and it's up north, and they say, these folks just, when they're on state, they're not getting anything. There's nothing there. And this one guy comes up, and he goes, that was the funniest thing I've ever seen. I almost laughed. <laughs> but what it reminds me is that, you know, we are all so different. We are all so different. And so other people, you know, some of my fans are not going to relate in the same way I relate. They're not going to communicate in the same way I do. They don't have the same body language that I do. And that's okay. And what a beautiful thing because it takes all types. Right? It takes all types. So uh, it just reminds me to stay humble and keep an open mind and an open heart. You guys have been talking a lot. Uh, you guys kind of really dig the uh, the history of magic rather than just. Do you, do you I mean, is that like a big interest for you guys? You guys really research it? I mean, I find every fact you throw out there, I found right well there's a deep golden history there so it should be explored I mean it's a treasure trove and there's no need to reinvent the wheel that's really what it is there's a lot of great magicians who's come before us so we should really look at what they did uh, because if their names are remembered they probably did something right so we should learn from that and do it do you, I mean, do you find that it's like a research like a, like a hobby for you researching the, the, the history of it do you use that that inspire you guys in your creation your act or is it just more knowledge that you guys to, to me it's it's part of the job you know mm-hmm. it's um, it's not like a side hobby it's part right. of the well, all right, it's part of the work. It would be awfully embarrassing if somebody walked up and started talking to me about Houdini and I didn't know who the guy was. <laughs> so I've got to have some answers here to give them when they come up and ask me things. I feel like that happens to Adam on the podcast. Hey, do you know this director? Everyone's no. Well, okay, well, this guy. <laughs> Under the bus. <laughs> Being a cinema podcast, how do you how do you guys feel about magic being portrayed in cinema? Oh, um, so we get compared to the Prestige a lot, uh, okay, just by the nature of our acts. Um, so I think that's some, that's one that like, catches our eye, and I enjoy that movie. I think it's a pretty good one. Um, I, I don't know of many instances recently of magic being portrayed, but I also don't watch a lot of. Pop culture, tell you the truth. <laughs> right, 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 sure. <laughs> We're like Three Stooges fans, Mark's Brothers fans. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's, it's funny because um, I feel like with what we do, you know, I, I really consider ourselves variety artists. And so we've got, we've got a foot just in so many worlds. There's theater, there's magic. There's a circus. There's uh, just the Renaissance Festival circuit. 
that's been going on for 30, 40 years. Like, that's got its own kind of subculture, you know, situation. So, um, there's, you know, the vocal performance, there's acting. I mean, there's so many things to research and to be inspired by. And it's, yeah, I mean, um, you know, something that when people ask, you know, what do you do? And then, you know, I give my little synopsis and they say, well, that sounds really interesting. And I say, well, it keeps us entertained. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully we entertain other people too. <laughs> so that brings me to a, a question. Um, so you can talk about all these different places you go, the Skinner the Renaissance festivals. Do the characters of Judas and Magnolia, do they change based off the festival? Or are you guys always this kind of steampunk, sky pirate? Oh, well, yeah, I would say our character doesn't change. Uh, the hat we put on the volunteer changes. Okay. Uh, at a Renaissance festival, it might be a tricorn hat. At a steampunk festival, it might be a top hat. Uh, our characters stay the same. The situation we're in uh, changes to meet the theme of the festival. So we discussed a lot of things, um, but one of the things that we haven't talked about is one of your new tricks. Um, you guys have a seance show. Right. Uh, what kind of things can we expect from that? So I'm, uh, like I said, I'm very into magic, but that one, I'm not sure what that is. So it's a theatrical seance. By that, we mean we reenact a seance that you would have encountered during the mid-1800s, both in style and technique. So you could have expect you could expect to walk into our show and see and feel the same things you would have saw and felt at a Victorian seance chamber. Uh, we want to be very clear that we're a magician, so everything is illusion. But they were pretty much magicians as well, so everything that was happening in those seance chambers was illusion. We're just upfront about it, so we don't want to mislead anybody. We want them to be clear that uh, they're not having a legitimate spiritual experience. They're being manipulated by a magician. Um, and although it feels very real, and the experience is very convincing, that, they, that it appears that they are speaking with spirits, they're not. And uh, we find it important to let our audience know that beforehand, because we don't want them to be taken advantage of. We would hate a situation to happen where... It's unclear that what we did was magic, so it opens them up to be taken advantage of by somebody else who has uh, nefarious intentions. And, and how did you guys come across? Uh, like, how did you guys come up to the show? Like, how did you uh, decide to start writing it and come up with the tricks involved? Well, the tricks involved inside have just—they've been around forever. We didn't, you know, we just looked at what the Victorian mediums were doing and uh, we did them because they were magic tricks. Uh, so we do such we do things such as table tipping. It's where our um, our seance participants are around a table. We chant, and the table starts to move and tilt around, and a spirit spirit uh, air quotes is possessing the table, and it starts to answer questions as it moves around. Uh, then we move into something called glass moving. It was a Victorian predecessor to the Ouija board. More or less, there's a wine glass that's upside down on the table with lettered cards around the perimeter. Everybody touches the wine glass, and it moves around to answer questions. Uh, the finale of the show then takes place in absolute darkness, where everybody's holding hands around the table and everybody's feet are connected, and uh, stuff starts to happen in the seance chamber. Say a music box might start to wind up and float around, or people will, have, will report feeling fingers running through their hair, when uh, we're the only ones in the chamber and everybody's holding hands. And, and I want to be clear that although uh, when we read about some of the things that spiritualists 
uh, spiritualist mediums were doing in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s. We read about it and we go, that sounds awful, hokey. I guarantee you, we it is so moving when we get people in our shows. We were doing one last night. A woman literally started crying. Um, she started crying. Yes. Uh, it's hard to imagine, but if you can, if you will, a magic show where you can bring adults to tears. And that's the magic inside the seance chamber. It is that compelling. And it is especially for that reason that we feel an obligation to our audience to be very clear and upfront. We are magicians and illusionists. What just happened was a magic show. Remember this as you move forward. Because I would really hate for somebody to view our show, be convinced by it, and then walk down the street and there'd be another medium that does the same tricks but uses them to convince uh, the change grandmother's will or something like that. Like, So we need to protect people from sort of no goodness in that way by letting them know that we're magicians, this was illusion. If you encounter this somewhere else, remember... You saw it before, and it was an illusion. That's kind of really cool, because you were talking about doing uh, Harry Houdini's novels. He very famously went around debunking. He did. He had a very interesting uh, seance show, in fact. As part of his debunking process, he would travel small town to small town, and he would hold shows in sort of big meeting halls. And what he would do... When he was an escape artist, he would call people on, on stage that were more or less the judges from the community. And they would uh, make sure all the locks were real and all the chains were real. During a seance show, he did something very similar. He would call people up from the audience and he would sit them around a table. And he would put blackout hoods on them so they couldn't see what was going on. And then he would sit but down everyone at everyone in the audience could. The lights were up. Everybody in the audience could see clearly. And then he would sit down with them and hold hands and conduct a seance. The audience could see that he was slipping the restraints and doing all kinds of things, ringing bells. But the people that were on the stage with him, the judges, could not because of the blackout hoods. And then at the end, he would, in the show, in the seance, unhood everybody and ask the judges, did I ever let go of your hand? And all kinds of other questions. And the judges would say, would swear, no. It was impossible. Some, nobody else was up here with us. It was just you and us. We had your hands held the entire time. It had to have been spirits. And then he would turn to the audience. They got to see everything. They got to see him ring bells with his feet and slip the restraints. And he would ask them, did I slip out of this restraint? So the whole audience would say yes. Oh, so that's how he did it. And it's, it's funny because um, some people do know that Houdini was you know, very big into debunking the spiritualists during his later years. Um, but not a lot of people are familiar with the fact that Houdini conducted these seances as a way to debunk spiritualists. Yeah. Uh, he also really... I correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he really want it to be true? He did. Because he wanted to speak with his mother. That's exactly it, yeah. He wanted to speak with his mother. And the story goes that his mother passed away, he was heartbroken, he attended several seances. And as he attended them, he started to notice themes, things that he recognized from magic that it appeared that the illusionists, that the mediums were doing. And one of them was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, the medium reported that his mother said something about, in Jesus' name. Well... Houdini and his mother, they're, they're, they're Jewish. His, his father was a rabbi. His mother would not say in Jesus' name. And it was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Houdini was like, this is fraudulent. You're using my emotions to get money. I'm going to go on a crusade to end you. Right, because he... It wasn't, it wasn't so much... It was more of like... 
I guess it was more like he really, instead of just being dead, like you're ruining that, this is my life with the money. It's more like, I really want you guys to be real, and I'm holding you up to a certain standard. Well, I wanted you to be real, and you weren't, right. is the thing. Like, you yeah. weren't, and now I realize that you're abusing people's trust. Yeah. But you've got to see something else. There's another side to Houdini. Like, this is sort of this heroic view of him that he did this. There's another side to this whole thing. So a Houdini, vindictive. Well, a little vindictive. Well, it's not just that. It's not just that. So Houdini lived at an interesting age. She lived at the end of vaudeville and the rise of movies. Houdini was having a problem. Vaudeville was ending, and he was having a hard time transitioning into film. He had to find another way to keep his name in the public eye and the spotlight and continue to, continue to earn money. And then he started the crusade against spiritualists. Because him and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had world-renowned... Right. So you can see him as either a hero that wanted the crusade, or you can see him as, um, as he was his entire life, a good businessman and a self-promoter that found a niche that he could be, that he could promote himself as the anti-spiritualist crusader. So there's sort of two different ways to view him. And you know, like like anyone, like any story, there's probably truth to all sides. It's kind of funny because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is famous for being a spiritualist, but he's also famous for creating the most famous atheist in Sherlock. Right. Well, and so just context to that as well, and and this is part of the larger context of the spiritualist movement, uh, particularly in America, but in Europe as well. People were wanting to connect with loved ones because mid-1800s, America, Civil War, right? You start to get towards the turn of the century throughout the entire world, World War One, the, the war to end all wars. A few years later, World War Two. you know? And, and people are losing not just their husbands, their brothers, they're losing their children, you know, their, their sons. And, and at that time, people, I mean, the whole world was hurting. The whole country, the whole world was really in this space of just this immense loss. And, uh, and can you blame people for, for wanting to connect with the loved ones that they just lost? But it's not just the loss. We, that was an interesting age. It was um, kind of the blossoming of industrialism. There were all these new technologies and new scientific discoveries. You had the radio and the telephone. You had new ways to communicate and connect. And it just made sense to people that we're making these new discoveries. What if we discovered a way that we could connect with our loved ones? It just sort of fit into this narrative of the age of discovery and connection and new technologies. So it wasn't hard for people to swallow. They wanted it because of loss, and they could fit it into this kind of this changing world that they had found themselves in. So we don't want to take all your afternoon. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, we're, we're happy to chat. It's so, really nothing. Because I could ask you a thousand So you guys, uh, your inspiration was the Australian husband and wife team. Yeah, the Peddingtons. The Peddingtons. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any recommendations for anybody listening? Besides watching you guys, do you guys have any recommendations? Well, I mean, 
Yeah, so a list of recommendations. If you're interested in that book on the Peddingtons, I think it's the Peddingtons Revealed is a good one. Uh, it goes over a lot of the stuff that was kind of recently discovered for them. Um, yeah, it was made public. Once that notebook was found, uh, I think the, the grandson, perhaps, of the person who had the notebook published it. So you can find a lot of those secrets now if you buy, if you buy sort of this book. Um, so if you're interested in that, I recommend checking out the Peddingtons Revealed. It has a lot of great uh, magic history as well, so if you want to follow up on the magic history portion, or maybe even sort of war history, if you want to hear about this, how they transmitted secrets within uh, prisoners of war camps, and that that's covered as well. Because magic magicians have a big, magicians and special effects artists have a big history with the military. Right, right. Um, oh, Oh, just, uh, someone had mentioned Penn and Teller before, mm-hmm. and I just, I, I want to um, acknowledge that we definitely draw inspiration from Penn and Teller, um, particularly, again, I'm, I'll touch on a character, uh, not just character development, but the way that the characters on stage are relating to one another, you know, that's been a great, great inspiration for us, and obviously they've done a lot, a lot, a lot in the magic community. So, anything of theirs, uh, you had mentioned their latest show, uh, Fool Us, very accessible online, very easy to find. Right. Uh, so, well, I was just going to ask, do you guys have any questions for us before we uh, we hit the closing here? Oh, yeah. What other events are you guys doing? Where else are y'all going to be? Uh, that is a great question, Adam. <laughs> this is one of those throwing under the bus situations we were talking about a moment ago. Uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty comfortable. <laughs> He's learning to get comfortable. Uh, whatever events we can get to. Yeah, we're, we're pretty, uh, we have, uh, our schedule is one of those things that's kind of last minute. We record every Sunday at uh, my business, mm-hmm. and um, uh, when we hit these kind of events, we, we kind of line up when we can. I can promise you we'll be here next year for Big River Steampunk Festival. Um, it's, we're a 20-minute drive, and it's fantastic. I really want to see about going to uh, some of the St. Louis events that we've talked about and some of the other people we've talked about. Um, I mean, we're a short drive from there, and that's it. You know, you guys seem interested in the seance, but I think it would be fun if you guys wanted to. You guys aren't too far from St. Louis. If you guys wanted to do a little podcast maybe somewhere around Halloween regarding the seance, and if you guys wanted to sit in on one and maybe run the little thing, I'd let you tape what what takes place in the seance. Maybe all of this 100%. Once we're off here, maybe we can make some plans. I think that would be a fun show. That would be amazing. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. I do have one last question. Yes, yes. Our special guest, whispering in my ear, she would like to know if you ever have been or will try out for America's Got AGT! So much good stuff on AGT. Um, we, we have some friends who have done that. Um, I don't know that that's really our cup of tea. Right. We, in, we run into an issue there if our shows are 30 to 45 minutes long. And they're narrative-driven. And that's not really the format of AGT. Um, and I don't want to do something if I can't shine at it. If it's not going to be the best possible, I just don't, I don't do them. I do like the show, and I really enjoy the people who are on there. I just don't think our format of entertainment fits their format, and and that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Just just a different different kind of thing going on. 
Well, I, I, I pretty, like, I can talk to you guys about Maverick. I ask you a thousand questions about Maverick. I really like. Oh yeah, a- another person we could talk to all, all day if we could. Uh, but I know you guys have things to do, and uh, we're taking up your time off. Um, so those listening at home um, and us, how do we find out more about Judas and Magnolia? Oh, fantastic. Visit JudasandMagnolia.com. We're on Facebook, Judas Like the Apostle and Magnolia Like the Tree. Find us on Facebook, uh, JudasandMagnolia.com. Find us on Tumblr, on Twitter, on Instagram, sort of all the important places. Okay, great. There we go. And we'll have links to all of that in the description. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you guys. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being on the cast. Oh, yeah, our pleasure, our pleasure. If you guys like to do something in October, come over to St. And we are back with the last interview, The Magic of Editing. Hey. Me and Daniel sat through all of that and listened to all of that. That was, that was good. Yes, and fast forward because it only took us like a minute. No, no, we listened to all four hours. Are we doing the veil thing again? It so did not work in the intro. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, uh... So uh, all the all the websites and uh, social networking for every uh, guest we had, we will post in the description on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, everywhere. Uh, we're just very very happy that we took uh, more time than they promised us, as always, and they didn't complain. Oh, absolutely not. We again we we had the lie of oh this will only take twenty minutes or so, and we got all of them for at least forty. And uh, a gr- a big big thank you to everyone.